town there's been. Who's there to ride to anyway? Welcome back, and this is episode 8 of Gotham TV Podcast, the unofficial podcast of the upcoming TV show Gotham and the DC Connected Universe. I'm your host, John. And I'm your other host, Derek. Welcome back. This week, we will be reviewing and exploring the second in Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, The Dark Knight. But before we do, we'll take a look at some of the news that came out over the last two weeks relating to Gotham and the Batman universe. Now for a City Watch news brief here on GCN. It's been a bit of quiet two weeks in, in regards to news, but Warner Brothers International TV Distribution uh, have have held their LA screenings for all the international TV companies. Uh, what this means is essentially they brought all the shows that involve Warner Brothers Television to one location, brought all these international uh, representatives of the various TV channels to see all the shows, see the pilot episode and got some feedback on you know on, on who's going to buy what essentially uh, it's great news for us because we're based in ireland it's going to take quite a while before we know uh, who's going to broadcast gotham in ireland and essentially what they've been saying was there's 10 individual shows that they brought that warner brothers brought to uh, to these screenings in la uh, and of all those shows the one that stood out to all the international broadcasters was gotham which is great news for us and this was reported in the hollywood reporter magazine yeah yeah, yeah. hollywood reporter essentially had an interview with uh, with a couple of the heads of acquisition uh, one particularly interested us which was sarah rice who's the head for b sky b uh or the sky channel in europe one of our biggest channels over here uh, they currently broadcast arrow uh, at the moment mm-hmm. and after seeing the full pilot episode what she said was um it looks like a smart origin story beautifully produced with a strong cast so Sounds like they're very interested in buying the rights to this. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, I think it was um, Jeffrey uh, Schleisinger, uh, president of the Warner Brothers um, Worldwide TV Distribution, said that broadcasters seem to be looking at Gotham, the TV show, as something that already has this built-in name recognition. So in terms of advertising, promoting it, there's there's almost this built-in consciousness for, for viewers, and that's presumably from all the different Batman comics, films, games, uh, for such a long time. It's yeah. so, so well known. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's a couple of other quotes from the, uh, from the various, um, various agencies, essentially. Um, there's, they've called it a gritty cop drama, not exactly what they were expecting, but excellent. The casting of Ben McKenzie's perfect in the role. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that that's been picked out. Um, it's certainly something that we thought when we just saw the trailer that, you know, he had got it nailed. Uh, that role, whether he's got a moustache or not, it was really interesting to see him play that role. Um, yeah. So it's interesting that other people have noted that when they've been looking at the TV uh, trailers for it. Yeah, absolutely. And this it's very much from Hollywood Reporter and from TVWise.com, who are both um, well-known sites regarding this kind of activity. What they've essentially said is this is absolutely going global. There, There's no doubt that this is the one show that of all the screenings that were done in LA during the week of the of May 19th to May 23rd, this is the one that stood out to everybody. Yeah. And that's really great. We hope it's going global. And um, certainly for us, as global as it can get and as global and as close to its original broadcast date would be perfect for, for us in your 
Europe, um, and certainly for for our podcast. Yeah, and we can already see from our listeners how many people across the world are are already interested in this show six months out, which is which is great. So I'm sure you guys are pretty excited about that as well. Of the the ones of that ones of you that aren't in America and aren't guaranteed a launch date yet, I'd say this is quite interesting news for all of you as well as as it is for ourselves. So really, I think that's probably most of the news really surrounding Gotham this week or any yeah. news of any substance, because I suppose with the release of the trailer, both the teaser and the extended version of it, mm-hmm. um, a lot of this news now is kind of just ramping down. I suppose they're getting back into production, but it will be really in, um, closer to broadcast that we'll start to get some more promotion uh, and it will get promotion sort of closer to that time when it's actually released. And I suppose one of the things that will be um come up next will be these sort of tying down of the release dates in North America mm-hmm. but also in various other international um areas such as the UK and Ireland Europe and so on yeah and i think the the only other piece of the only the trailer we're expecting for definite is a series trailer or a season trailer once they've mm-hmm. recorded quite a few episodes they'll put out a series trailer um a much longer one hopefully so we can have loads more to talk about yeah no it would be it would be really interesting to see the series trailer definitely uh, it'll give us a bit more flavor of some of those sort of intriguing images that were captured such as for uh, ivy pepper mm-hmm. uh, and for the riddler maybe yeah. Um, but in other Batman connected or DC connected news, there was also then the trailer released for Lego Batman 3 Beyond Gotham. Mm-hmm. This is set in, of all places, outer space. Yeah, very, so, very far beyond Gotham. Very far beyond <laughs> Gotham. Um, will include an entirely new bat suit, which will allow Batman to breathe oxygen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's set in space. It has a full sort of Justice League type poster. There's Wonder Woman there. Yep. There's Green Lantern and so on. Yeah, uh, pretty much the full cast of, of the Justice League area. Yeah, there's a nice little funny, funny bit with Superman flying in space without the need of a suit. Uh, kind of joking around with Batman, who doesn't like to be joked around with. Uh, it almost feels like a, a you know a, a deleted scene for the Lego Movie. It's that it's that kind of uh, that kind of style. So the Lego Movie was hugely popular and made Lego Batman a really popular character with kids. And this is now the third Lego Batman game that's being released. Yeah, and uh, we've played the previous one that was set in Gotham. Uh-huh. Um, we've also liked the the Marvel uh, Lego game that's been out. There's yeah. the Hobbit, there's the Lord of the Rings, there's Indiana Jones, Star I Wars. They, I think they released this week. Harry Potter. Yeah, I think they released this week. This is probably one of the most successful series of games of all time. They're, they're hugely successful every time they come out. And really well made games and really good fun. And one of the few games remaining where you can play... In with another with a friend another person um in the same room split screen great fun yeah really really enjoy those games and I, i'm sure i know again looking at the comments that we've had over the last uh since this trailer was released there's definitely a lot of fans of this of this series in this game yeah. and we're also probably very much looking forward to it so we certainly we're certainly looking forward to that being released and and uh getting our hands on it and having a, a play of the the lego batman 3 game mm-hmm. beyond gotham yeah so again very light light news week but uh, we do have some feedback to go through so again loads to talk about it's a funny world we live in speaking of which you know how i got these scars no but i know how you got these our first bit of feedback comes from blake riley from on twitter and he's saying he's, he's loving the show and he was wondering uh, because it came to mind because we made the point that Affleck looked like Frank Miller's Dark Knight and um, he made the point uh, would we go on to record and review the two Dark Knight Returns animated films after the Nolan movies um, and he 
thinks that those films are amazing. And I think we would agree, you know, we've looked at them uh, before. Um, DC Animation has always provided some good stories, such as the Batman Year One that we looked at, you know, uh, Mask of the Phantasm Mm -hmm. and so on. Really, really good um, quality from DC Animation uh, about with Batman and in the Batman universe. And certainly we're really pleased that... um, Blake is enjoying our show so far. Uh, hopefully we can sustain his interest in the show and he keeps uh, tuning in. And I think at the moment, I suppose we would, we would be open to suggestions. Our plan at the moment, after we've done the, the three Nolan films, and we would look at some of the comics in Gotham Central again. But certainly I think we're very much open to adding The Dark Knight Returns animated movies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, if you have any suggestions for stuff that you want us to cover, definitely let us know. Um, You know, we're always, we're definitely open for suggestions. The one thing that we're trying to make, you know, that we're trying to make the distinction on is obviously we want to cover as much to do with Gotham before Gotham goes live. Um, before the actual TV show starts, we want to cover as much to do with Gotham. There's not a huge amount out there, um, but there is, you know, there's characters like the Penguin that we have in there now, like Catwoman, like Edward Nigma, that we want to cover a lot to do with them and a lot of connections to them. The thing about Dark Knight Returns is that it's very much a movie about Batman and what he's like as he retires in, in his older years. I think that's a lot more connected to Batman v Superman, as we're now calling it, because we have the final name for that. <laughs> well, certainly, and but I think within that context, that's how we can look at those movies. Yeah. And to be honest, these movies, whether they're focusing on Batman um, or the wider Gotham City, it's how they inform us about the city of Gotham mm-hmm. and the interactions. And the with... cast of characters, yeah. Yeah, so there would still be a relevance there, but obviously not directly with Batman. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we'll, I think we'll we'll definitely have it on our list for uh, stuff to cover. Yeah, yeah. So thanks, Blake. Uh, thank you very much for the feedback there. Yeah, that's really nice. That's great. Yeah, thanks, Blake. Um, we also had a bit of feedback from Chris on our website. Uh, Chris says that he's a long-time listener, first-time commenter, which is always great to hear. You know, I'm, I know there's quite a few of you guys out there, which is great. Um, what he's saying is essentially he wants to ask us a few questions. So he saw our, our post about the uh, about the, the Penguin piece of art, and I'm sure you guys have heard uh, we're giving away a piece of art by Matt Fletcher uh, of The Penguin uh, for our, our best commenter and our person who provides the best piece of discussion for us um, before Gotham launches. Uh, Chris is definitely in there with this with this piece. So he's asked a couple of questions. Um, his first question, and John, I'll pose the youth question. You can you can come back to me. And then we'll uh, we'll back and forth on it. So, who would you consider to be the greatest Batman villain, both the comics and movie universe? Oh, now, well, you see, this is kind of quite difficult because we're about to do a review of The Dark Knight, mm. which has what many people would consider to be the quintessential Batman villain in the Joker. I mean, his true archetype and nemesis, mm-hmm. and so. I actually kind of just want to push that to one side for the moment. I'm not, I, I, I would agree with a lot of, of that. I think he is. And, but I kind of want to also explore other characters because I think sometimes they can get lost behind this hugeness that is the Joker and the character of the Joker. Yeah, absolutely. Like a character like the Joker who survived for, you know, 60 years and has had, you know, loads of reinventions and loads of different versions of it, which are which are amazing. You know, it's very difficult to look past him and when you're looking at the greatest villain 
you know, but there are some other great ones. And I think for me, I would pick two. Okay. I love the Riddler mm-hmm. and Ezra Nigma. I think his approach or his response to Batman, Batman is a detective. He is not a superhero. He's not injected with something. He's not been bitten by something. He's not an alien. Mm-hmm. He relies on his intelligence, his detective work, and the Riddler provides and lays down clues. Yeah. And so it is up to Batman to use that detectiveness. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's a word, but you know, his investigative abilities mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to say, uh, and to to understand the Riddler and what his particular dark plans are at that time. So for me, that is a really different dynamic. It's almost, it's like a game of chess being played then between the two. And that's what I like about that relationship. On the other side of that, then the other person that I really quite like um, is Oswald Cobblepot Mm. as the penguin. I think there's, again, it comes back to this idea of him being a detective and Cobblepot, of all the villains, is a mob boss. Yeah. He runs a club, you know, whether it's sort of trading illegal liquor or something like that that he would do. Or selling the, illegal weapons. Or selling illegal weapons, yeah. or trafficking something or yeah. other, whether it's maybe drugs or people. Mm-hmm. Any, it's, it's a classic criminal, a classic mobster trying to make money. His only aim is in money. And again, it works very well with this idea of a detective. Yeah. And finally, the one criminal. I know I'm. That's a third. I, I know it's a third one. I know I'm. <laughs> and you're asked for one. I'm asked for one, but I'm giving three. You know, okay. don't say we don't give on this show, and um, that we're not generous with our with, with our answers. But and thirdly, the one criminal that is increasingly I'm beginning to kind of pardon the pun or and a sort of opposing pun that I'm beginning to warm to is Doctor Freeze. Actually, mm-hmm. yeah. I like that story and it's unfortunately he was brutally uh, undermined by Arnold Schwarzenegger in the film but he's increasingly yeah he's he's building that reputation has kind of recovered I think for me and the more and the more and more I see or and read of his stories whether it was from the first few issues of Gotham Central Mm -hmm. whether it's with a cold cold heart DLC uh, content for the Arkham games yeah I'm kind of enjoying the reason, like he's he's a very tragic figure, and I like that, and I like how Batman interacts with him. It's almost like the male version, a bit of Catwoman, where he's got he sits on a dubious line between being actually pretty good at heart. His intentions are good to save his wife, but the methods by which he goes about them are are evil. But interestingly, it depends on which version of the story of, of Victor Freeze you take. So there's been, again, various different versions of them. Yeah. And there's some fantastic ones, which I won't spoil the, won't spoil the twists that are, that are in there. But yeah, sometimes he seems like, you know, I could totally get behind this guy that wants to save his wife. I'd totally get behind yeah. that, you know. But there's, there's other stories that tell a really different version of Victor. And yeah, I think he's a really interesting character. I love a character. I love Mr. Freeze. I think he's really, really good. But if I'm to pick one, it would be the Riddler. Right. Okay, I would say that's uh, that's that is definitely your choice. You can see it from uh, from when when the casting of Corey Michael Smith came in to the fact that that 
uh, Edward Nigma is going to become a part of the series. I think you're more yeah, excited yeah. about the show, even more excited about the show than you ever Definitely. had. But I suppose from my side, again, I can't really take the pin out of the Joker. I still think he's a fantastic villain. There's a reason he's been around for many, many years and he's had some great reinventions and, and fantastic uh, characterization. But I love Catwoman. I love Catwoman as a character. I love the fact that she's been a villain and she's been a, hero, a heroine. Uh, she's been a hero um, many, many times. I love the versions that they've done on her. And I also just love the fact that she's a sexy seductress to a guy that's never had a girlfriend, essentially. <laughs> or has had one girlfriend, which is Sally Al Ghul. He ends off with her on and off all the time. And she just plays that seductive card and then goes and robs a bank behind his back. You know, you can't take the pretty things away from her. I love that, the idea of the character. While um, she's on heroin. Well, she's a heroine, yes. Not on heroin, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think she's probably probably my favourite after the Joker. So, you know, again, this is stuff that makes us excited about Gotham, having these characters all be involved in the TV series. Certainly. Yeah. Um, Chris goes on to an, an even more t- difficult question then, I think. So back to Chris. Thanks again for, for your feedback. Um, so his next question is, who do you consider to be the greatest Robin? And he's asked, is it Tim, Jason, or Damien? He's forgotten quite an important Robin there, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's Dick Grayson. Yeah. Uh, and I would say I'm I'm personally quite quite an old chap, and <laughs> Dick Grayson is the is the Robin I grew up with anyway. Um, well, that's it. I mean, I think most people's introduction to Robin is through Dick, um, and it's a really important character. His parents were murdered, so there's that empathy between him and Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne essentially trains him, uses his acrobatic skills from the circus um, to to become Robin, to become his sidekick. It's his original sidekick, and ultimately he adopts the identity of Nightwing. Um, you know, he's been leading the Teen Titans, and there becomes this split from Batman because he's like, "Will you aid and help the Dark Knight, or mm-hmm. are you?" leading and running the Teen Titans. But ultimately, they become close allies and and work together to battle crime within Gotham. And so for me, that partnership is really long-standing. There's very much similarities to backgrounds um, between the two. It's almost Batman taking on a mentoring role. There is the sidekick element as well. But there are certainly other important points then for, for Jason and for Tim. Uh, within within this role uh, of the Robin or the Boy Wonder, <laughs> yeah, I suppose there's you know there's not that really that really been that many of them. I definitely say mine is mine is Dick Grayson. He's he's probably my favorite. I do love Damien being the son of Batman. I love that he's come and taken over the mantle as as Robin. I love uh, what they've done with each of the characters over the years. There's been some really good stories with each of the Robins. It's quite difficult to pick out an individual one. But, uh, but yeah, for me, it's Dick Grayson, definitely. Yeah. And thanks so much for that feedback, Chris, and for um, Blake as well. Um, as you guys can, can hear, people are getting in contact with us in various different ways. You can get us on Facebook, on Twitter. And I think what the point we should make here is that, you know, both would go into the, the hat for the Penguin Art. Yeah. I mean, and certainly I think, I didn't really say it afterwards for, for Blake's comments on Twitter, but ultimately I would say we are seriously considering doing the um the Dark Knight Returns animated films and that obviously is going to be a huge enough yeah. for a very large discussion. So Blake on that basis would go into the hat for the Penguin Art. Yeah, yeah. So easy ways to get in contact with us and you could be in there with a chance as well. Um, thanks very much for the feedback guys. I think it's time to go on to our review. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. I believe whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. That track really just uh, really coops me out. I mean, it's such a great sort of capturing of just chaos and, I don't know, unknown, unnamed sort of disturbance. It's yeah, really it's, interesting. It's so unnerving. I think I mentioned in the podcast last week or last time about you know how they create these themes for characters, but that Joker theme is such a, such a really creepy one. I don't know how they really came up with it in the end, but really, really unnerving. Um, so, so we're on to the Dark Knight now already. We're yeah. on, to the, on to the second in the, in the Christopher Nolan trilogy. Uh, John, do you want to go through a synopsis of what, what we're going to be talking about? Yeah, sure. So a synopsis of the film. Starring Christian Bale and Heath Ledger and Aaron Eckhart, the Dark Knight follows soon after the events of Batman Begins. The criminal underbelly of Gotham are being steadily eroded by the presence of the Batman and his work to fight crime with Jim Gordon at the Major Crimes Unit at the Gotham Police Department and with the new DA, Harvey Dent. The mob, in a desperate attempt to secure their interests and recapture their place in Gotham, turn to a new menace never seen before, one with a new or no rules and one that the mob didn't truly understand. The Joker throws Gotham to the dogs, sending it into a tailspin and turmoil by his willful, murderous actions. These actions undercut Gotham's three saviours, Batman, Jim Gordon and Harvey Dent, as they turn in on themselves, undermined by the Joker, whose real intentions become clear, those of anarchy and chaos. This results in a pact, a lie, that sees the Dark Knight become the hunted and which has repercussions through this film, and into the final instalment of the trilogy. So once again, we have a very cold open to this film. This was a, a six-minute IMAX shot that was shown in, in cinemas about six months before the movie came out. Um, it's the opening and, and the lead-in for the Joker and a really cool scene, a really cool bank heist. There's five guys doing a bank job. It turns out one of them is the Joker uh, who leads them. The guys don't know who he is. There's a real cool air of uh, as they're discussing everything going on they keep mentioning this character called the joker and they all have individual stories about how he how he came to be and how he is yeah and it's it's a real interesting point that in batman begins same with this and it'll be the same with the the next film that we reviewed the dark knight rises in each film in this trilogy the main villain raz al ghul joker bane disguised himself as one as that as one of their own henchmen yeah um, yeah and there is a conversation about that villain in each scene. Mm -hmm. so it's really interesting, hidden, in a sense, in plain sight within that film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the, the first line that's spoken in the film as well. So the last shot in Batman Begins was the Joker card, um, which 
uh, which Jim Gordon presented to Batman and said, this is the guy you got to chase down. The first line of this film is, as the, th the first three criminals get together in the car, they go three of a kind. Let's do this. So it's another little card metaphor, which I thought was quite cool. Yeah, and it's interesting as well that this whole sort of lead in where, again, this is all in IMAX. It's mm -hmm. um, zooming in on that sort of mirrored uh, skyscraper in Gotham, which was shot, obviously, in Chicago. Chicago stands in for, for Gotham mm -hmm. uh, this time. The actual theme that is being played is the start of the Joker theme. Mm -hmm. It's not Batman. Um, whereas previous film, it was the beginnings of the Batman theme. This is the start of the Joker theme. Yeah. It's really telling in relation to this entire film. Um, but yeah, this bank heist, it was what, six minutes of IMAX footage. These first six minutes were also on the Batman Begins Blu-ray mm -hmm. discs, um, which something that helped with the f promotion of the film. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but this is the first time IMAX had really been used in a, in a movie. Uh, I think they've done a little bit in Sp Superman Returns, the Brian Singer film. But essentially, this is something that Chris Nolan wanted to do. He wanted to get that big canvas um, yeah. to, to record big portions of this film. And there's four big scenes in IMAX, and this is the first of them. Um, really stands out, and especially now, I'm watching it on Blu-ray now. You can definitely tell the difference in quality between IMAX projection and IMAX recording. Yeah, I think Chris, it's kind of well known, certainly now, that Christopher Nolan is a huge um, advocate of using IMAX in terms of the resolution it provides. It's also that, you know, whilst it's not that he's against digital, he prefers not to film in digital. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the stories behind the use of IMAX here was this idea that, well, They've taken these cameras to the moon. Mm -hmm. They've taken them to the top of Everest. Why not utilize them now for doing a cinematic released film? Yeah. And not only is it just sort of kind of large shots that he takes with them, but it's also quite intimate shots. And it's also been action shots as well with this film. So he really sort of expanded the range of the use of IMAX within yeah. this film. I think it's absolutely fabulous. I think, and I think once again, you know, talking about Christopher Nolan's interests, he's a huge Bond fan, as we all have heard many times, or we've heard many times. Uh, he's a big fan of Bond. Don't know why he hasn't directed one yet, but this is very close to a Bond movie. Open with, with a, you know, a big scene, a big action sequence before you introduce the main characters. You know, it's it's a really really cool idea. It really sets up the Joker as a character and really sets up. Yeah, I, I think it, it sets up the Joker. It's very there's a nice little clever sort of twist. This idea that each of the the thieves involved is killing one another to increase their their share. And mm -hmm. the, there's this talk as it's five shares or no, it's six. There's also this Joker guy because again they don't know that he's hiding with them in plain sight. And um, you know you get these little hints of. Um, oh, that's the number going out. It's going to the cops. No, it's a silent alarm. It's going to a private number. I, who is it? Is it the Batman or is it the mobsters? Is it the mobs of Gotham? Because well, it's this is a mobster bank. Yeah, William Fichtner does his little uh, his little cameo here and tells him that it's a mobster bank. Do they not know who they're messing with? Yeah, do you, and who who do you know who you're stealing from? Yeah. So it's really interesting. I got William Fichtner written down as a bank manager with a shotgun, which just basically his character. I presume he doesn't have a name other than <laughs> bank manager with a shotgun. Part of their training. <laughs> um, but um, he has a really interesting line as well, um, where he says, "Criminals in this town used to believe in things, honor, respect, etc." Mm -hmm. And it's funny because it play that whole idea of criminals and what they used to believe in the standard of criminals plays out again 
later on in this film. Yeah. But this time it's from another perspective. But we'll come to that when uh, when when we do. Yeah, but first we see our first bit of Joker mayhem, essentially, where one of the bank robbers turns around to him and says, do you know how many shots the bank manager has shot out of a shotgun? Is he out yet? And Joker goes, um, I think so. <laughs> and then proceeds to get the, uh, the that thief shot, essentially, just by his little bit of the mayhem. Don't know whether he knows how many shots have been shot or whether he's just... You know, messing with the guy essentially, but I uh, like that little bit, of, little bit of insight to his character at the beginning. And then we just get the the full facial um, of the Joker, where he's like, he turns to the bank manager and he plonks in a what we think is a grenade into his mouth, and he mm-hmm. takes off his clown mask to reveal himself. Mm-hmm. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stranger. Yeah, that's what everyone. On the Blu-rays, just before I Am Legend, everyone is introduced to this like really classic kind of line. Uh, I well, iconic, it's I should say. Absolutely, become iconic. Also, a great delivery and a great setup for ultimately maybe what this film is is about. This mm-hmm. idea that you have Batman in the middle of two people here: the Joker and Harvey Dent. Yeah, and you got to remember at the time when we went to see this in the cinema, this was the guy from 10 Things I Hate About You, you know, an Australian guy that basically had done nothing much, a small small film, Brokeback Mountain, which is very well known for at the time. Yeah. But you didn't expect him to take on what at the time was Jack Nicholson's mantle of the Joker. You had no idea what was going to happen. This scene it cemented it for people, I think. Um, this is what drew everybody into the cinema. This is what everybody was talking about, you know. Um, going away from the cinema was his performance as the Joker, and he absolutely sets it up brilliantly here. He certainly owned that character, and certainly wanted to make it something different from Jack Nicholson's. Mm-hmm. He obviously was rewarded for it through through an Oscar mm-hmm. posthumously, um, which was tragic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly, there's the snippets of information that he he seriously immersed himself into this character, and the performance shows that. I mean, it is quite chilling it's quite unnerving Mm -hmm. but it's also sublime and quite nuanced as well and i mean even down to the makeup of the joker Mm -hmm. it's apparently said that he designed that himself and then the the makeup um artists had to recreate it each time he was very much trying to in a sense give that degree of separation between him and jack nicholson because jack nicholson delivers also an incredibly good performance i mean the joker as a character allows great actors to do something wonderful with it because of the the range that it provides for them mm-hmm. and i mean you know his apparently is so sort of this somewhere between sort of sid vicious as a sort of that punk element and punk yeah. rocker but also the character in a clockwork orange by michael mcdowell that sort of anarchic uh character yeah i think which was I think it's Alex Delage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is that. It's just that craziness that that he really, really embodies. Really, really good. And such. A, it's a sad loss, you know. But you know, once again, I, I'll say this once again. Before this film was released, the idea of anybody else playing the Joker again after Jack Nicholson was unheard of. I'm actually really looking forward to seeing who else takes on this part in the lifetime of the. Batman and Gotham universe, I'm really excited to see who else has a take on this and what, what that tech, next take is going to be. If there's anything that Heath Ledger to, has shown us and what his acting showed us, is that you can really take this part and run with it. So, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's just, on a quicker side, 
you know, there's been a lot of debate recently about, you know, who can who's who's going to take on maybe the mantle of Iron Man mm-hmm. um, from Robert Downey Jr. and so on. But again, you see, it's possible. It's possible to reinvent a character. Okay, there may be slightly more years in between, yeah. but you see it with Bond. Mm-hmm. It's not out of the realm of possibility that someone can come in and own that character, give a new twist, a new spin. It's being brave with the casting. Yeah. Allow that. And they were certainly brave with the casting here, definitely. Uh, but yeah, fantastic. We'll, we'll obviously talk about uh, talk a lot more about Heath Ledger as we go on. But yeah, I love the little escape at the end of the at the end of the bank robbery scene. He's essentially killed everybody that came in and helped him rob the bank. Um, gets in a school <laughs> bus, drives through, drives back out through a wall, and ends off in the middle of a of a school trip, essentially with uh, with twelve other school buses. Completely unnoticed, all the dust that's flying off the back of his uh, <laughs> yeah. school bus. Surely the school bus behind him would need to have their windscreen wipers on and go. What's just happened here? I'm surprised the other school bus didn't crash into <laughs> exactly. it as it comes out. Of Perfect bank. timing. And Excellent timing. timing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that kind of closes the opening of the film. Essentially, um, it moves us on to an, another scene with uh, with the reintroduction of. One of our characters from the first film. Yeah, Dr. Jonathan Crane, but now this time much more strongly the Scarecrow. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think on this, it's this whole idea that the Batman has changed the situation for for thieves, for criminals, for drug peddlers and all that yeah. in Gotham, that they are sort of hiding away during the night, coming out during the day, maybe, mm-hmm. but also... In the case of the the mobster we're introduced here, who's drug dealing with the Scarecrow, he's got dogs that to sniff out if the Batman's coming and to warn them. Yeah, and I love the fact he's also changed the drug business in the city. So they actually can only deal with Scarecrow because he's driven every other game out of town, as they say. And the Scarecrow's drugs are driving people insane. So driving all of their all of their customers insane. So, you know. Quite, a, quite an interesting one there. And I love Jonathan Crane's delivery. I think he's fantastic. I love Killian Murphy. He's brilliant in this. And he says this great line where he says, you know, my product will take you to places. I didn't say that there was places that you wanted to go to because it's obviously so potent and sort of just way out there. Yeah, so that's re- really good um, delivery. Yeah. But one of the things that we start to see here is that actually Batman is inspiring other residents of Gotham maybe for good or for bad, but he's essentially inspiring Gothamites to also do copycat, maybe also go down to and help out a local food bank and stuff like that. But he is inspiring other people to take some form of action within the city. Whether direct action like this is something that is reasonable in a society, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Certainly... There'd be a big hoo-ha if it was actually happening for real. He's inspiring people to actually take on these criminals. And I suppose we have to remember that Gotham was sinking. I mean, it was deep in corruption. Uh, It was mired with sort of uh, neutered public officials and and police force. So this is kind of saying like he is starting to get make people think about it, take action themselves in some way. And to start to clear out sort of the the bad criminal elements, or at least drive them further and further away from having these dreadful impacts on, on the city. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the fact that he's inspired these people. This is what he said he always wanted to achieve with with the Batman, was to inspire the city to stand up for themselves. But he's really scared of what he's created with these with these characters, with these people that are putting on 
hockey pads and taking out shotguns and shooting at criminals. He doesn't do that. He has his one rule, which is not to kill people. The first of the of, of these um, pretender Batmans that appears takes out a shotgun and tries to blow someone's head off. You know, completely different. They don't get what his rule yeah. is. Um, and he, in fact, says himself, sort of, I think, in a scene after with Alfred, is that this is not what he had in mind when he wanted to inspire people. Exactly. But inspire people, nonetheless, um, he is done. With or without hockey pants. <laughs> hockey pads, I think. <laughs> Other than hockey pants. I think it's hockey pads. <laughs> Which is what yeah. they're using to block to block punches. <laughs> but yeah, but then oh, it I have to... totally missed that for like <laughs> every time I've seen that, I just assumed he was sort of in the buff on his pants. <laughs> I don't wear pants. Okay. Oh, oh naturel, you know. I like it. I like it. Uh, returning to his to nature, <laughs> that type of thing. Yeah, I suppose there's no pants. On Free pants. and easy. But with the introduction of the the Batman now, and there's that great scene where he's fighting with the dogs. Mm. Um, you know, he's looking slightly awkward in the bat suit, and I think that's purposefully done because it gets changed up later yeah. on in the film. Yeah. He there's that great image where Jonathan Crane's trying to escape in his white van, mm-hmm. and he just floats down. And you get that image where he crashes down onto the roof of the van, and the van stops. And that's really good. One of the other things that we are introduced here, and it's another vocal sort of critique that happens, obviously in this film and the next. But the, you get this deep, gravelly voice, which I think for most people, when they heard it the first time, was perceptibly distinct from. The voice that Batman has in Batman Begins. Yeah, absolutely. He's really gruff and really deep and just, yeah, just makes him sound so much different to Bruce Wayne, which is part of the point of, of yeah, Batman. He has I, to sound different. This is, a, this is a person who's probably been on the radio quite a lot over the years being interviewed. He's probably been on TV quite a lot over the years being interviewed. So people probably know what his voice sounds like by making it that distinct. It's quite interesting that he's created this new character. And that... I suppose, infamous growl that occurred really in this film now. A lot of it, it supposedly happened in post-production. It wasn't that uh, Christian Bale was delivering something much more growly, much more deeper, much more husky Mm. whilst he was filming. He'd probably be taking a lot of lozenges if uh, if he'd done it on (laughs) set all the time. So we said the third act of of Batman Begins really cracks along. Here we are cracking along at a pace. It's it's introducing us to loads of new stuff. It's introducing us to the fact that there is no Wayne Manor. It hasn't been rebuilt as quickly as we thought. No, they they live in a penthouse Mm -hmm. um, and there's no Batcave. They're looking to do a search and seizure of all the mob banks. Mm-hmm. They've they've marked the bills with with isotopes, and that they want to hit the the mob banks. And in fact, we have the exchange with Jim Gordon and Batman, where he's like, "Well, but what about the Joker?" Mm-hmm. On the basis of the card from the end of Batman Begins, Batman is like at this stage, one man or the entire mob. It's this idea that they want to take down the entire mob. And then we're also then introduced to the new DA, the new district attorney, mm-hmm. which is Harvey Dent. Yeah, and the new Rachel Dawes, um, which is now played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Um, so a big change up from uh, from the previous film. A brand new actress playing the part uh, of, of Rachel Dawes. I quickly want to talk about that for for a second. There's, you know, there's, there's many rumours that have gone round about, about why Rachel Dawes is played by a new actress uh, in this film. It seems that Katie Holmes left the project, she says, because she had another film. Uh, on the slice, this film had to be made at a specific time and she wasn't available for it. That's the only official comment that's out there for it. There's been loads of other rumours about it, but but that's the official line on it is that's why she was out of it. But I'll tell you what I do believe in. 
I believe in Harvey Dent. Um, we are introduced <laughs> to Harvey Dent in the court of law, mm-hmm. where he should be. Exactly. Um, yeah, he, he comes in, and within two seconds, he's done his signature move. He walks in to the courthouse late for the court case, says to says to Rachel that he's that he's going to prosecute the criminal. She says she knows everything in there, and he says, do you want to flip for it? And he takes out his, his coin, and she says you shouldn't leave these kind of things to chance. But I know the case, so of course I'll... I'll go for it. And he says that line, which reoccurs throughout the film, I make my own look. And in this case, he's trying Salvatore Moroni. Mm-hmm. Played by Eric Roberts, who's Julia Roberts' older brother, which you didn't know, did you? No, I didn't. Yeah, um, he's, a, he's a really... Uh, and he's a good actor. He's a really minor character actor, which I, which I love. <laughs> That's your comment on Julia, isn't it? Yeah. Um, he's, a, he's a really minor character actor from the 80s and 90s. He's one of those people, if you're like me and you've watched, you know, countless B-movies and, uh, and small little, small action films like The Expendables and stuff like that, he's, he's in the background all the time. You see him everywhere. Yeah, this is the only film you really notice his acting, really notice him as a character. Yeah, and he's good. It's a nice little sort of role. Um, Maroney has important points important beats throughout this film Absolutely. and he delivers them really well yeah he's a really a really fun presence but he's very well known for chewing up the scenery around and uh, in, in all of the films he's, he's been in but yeah he takes over from the Falcon, from Falcone who uh, who was taken down by Batman in the first film as as Sal Moroni um really really fun little scene in the in the course uh, really proper introduction to the arrogance of of Harvey Dent and the uh, and his White Knight status where he runs in as if he's about to save the day. You know, it's really, really, yeah. really cool. Uh, but we find that the guy who's on the stand looks to try and kill Harvey Dent. So one of the interesting parts of this scene is to say that Harvey Dent is also making an impact in the same way that Batman is. Mm-hmm. He is unperturbed that he is fighting powerful dangerous people and they are trying to kill him because he has gotten at them and he's getting results mm-hmm. the, the guy on the stand pulls out his gun it doesn't fire gets jammed and he just like gives him a quick left hook dissembles the revolver mm-hmm. takes out the ammo and says if you want to kill a public citizen to Maroney uh, I suggest you buy American yeah. uh, awesome scene um, yeah. really good introduction to, to the DA uh, definitely and then after that, we get introduced to the relationship of Harvey Dent and Jim Gordon, mm-hmm. uh, where they're looking to get warrants, or sorry, Jim Gordon is looking to get warrants to search and seize the the money from the banks uh, mm-hmm. that are mobster banks, essentially. Yeah. And this is the piece of the story that's taken from The Long Halloween, the excellent graphic novel, which I'm, I'm sure we'll, I'll read many times again. Um, this partnership of Batman, Jim Gordon... Yeah. And Harvey Dent to take down the criminals within the city, where they plot together to take down take down exactly. the gangsters. Yeah. But one of the interesting plot points that plays out much later and has far deeper consequences than what you would think at this moment is where Harvey Dent is saying, at his time in internal affairs within the Gotham City Police Department, he investigated much of the major crimes unit that are now under Jim Gordon. Mm-hmm. And that point is, it's just made within the film. And it comes back and back again. Harvey Dent thinks that Jim Gordon has got corrupt members of the Major Crimes Unit, the MCU. Mm -hmm. Jim Gordon's like, I've picked these people, I can vouch for them. And it just becomes that little bit of contention between these two characters, despite them working together. And it's an important plot point, I think, for further on in, in the film. Yeah, and there's another really important line spoken by Jim Gordon here. 
where he essentially says, we all know that you're Gotham's white knight to Harvey. And Harvey says, yeah, but you guys down at the MCU had another name for me, didn't you? And we yes. don't find out that name immediately. We find that out a bit later on. It's very, very important to the character. But yeah, and then we're introduced to another returning character, which is Lucius Fox. Yeah. Um, and he's in the middle of a business deal with someone called Lau. And they brought in a consultant called Reese to look at the books a bit closer, essentially. Yeah. So, and Reese becomes really important later on. He looks like he's just a just a whiny little accountant, essentially, to when he's brought in first. And you think he's just got that one scene, and then he's going to disappear. He slags off the fact that Bruce is asleep during the meeting, but then he goes on to have much greater importance as the film goes on, like most of the characters that are introduced in the first half of the film. Yeah. And then, kind of, as you were saying about Lucius Fox, he's much more clued in, but there's just this lovely little exchange between him and Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is looking for a new suit, and Lucius Fox just kind of looks at him and goes, three buttons, that is a little 90s. Oh, nice. yeah, he's, he's much more complicit this time. I think last time we talked about, uh, in, in Batman Begins, we talked about the fact that Bruce was going down, kind of hiding his... his um, hiding what he's looking for um, right up until the end of the film where he tells him to go and replicate the serum and, and to cure everybody of, of the uh, of the uh, the scarecrow fear gas. Um, up until that point, you know, Lucius was kind of kept in the dark. Now he is absolutely complicit in, in Batman's plans. Very different uh, Lucius that we see in this, in this film, I suppose. And we move on to the meeting of Bruce Wayne and uh, Harvey Dent for the first time. Uh, With Rachel Dawes there as well. Yeah. So you have this bizarre... Double. In a sense, triangle, yeah, double, um, double date, yeah. double date going on, <laughs> and you you have these analogies being made about Gotham being Rome. Harvey Dent is comparing Batman to Caesar, where he is looking after the city in its time of crisis, and this is the analogy that he throws up. And Rachel Dawes, and there's also a sort of a Russian girl there as well, I think, from the ballet. Yeah, she's the, the head yeah. of the head of the ballet, and I like her, I like her point. She's very much looking at Gotham from the outside. She's the yeah. one, the one person that isn't isn't from Gotham that's at the table and she's very much why would you want to bring up children in this city it's horrible um, so that's her opinion of it Rachel and Bruce obviously know who the Batman is and they're not the ones that are justifying Batman it's Harvey that's justifying Batman Yeah. Uh, and at that point when Harvey starts to justify why there's a need for a Batman it's when Bruce turns to him and says I'm going to give you a fundraiser now I believe in Harvey Dent and if you have a fundraiser for me and my friends you'll never have to do a fundraiser again exactly. the arrogance of Bruce Wayne is still being shown yeah, uh, outwardly. And Harvey Dent comes up with the classic line, you either die a hero or you live long enough to become the villain. Mm -hmm. That's a, another really important line that thematically lends itself further down the line of, of this story. Yeah. And then from there, we head to what is one of the really significant scenes involving the Joker. And this is mm. the, the mob meeting where you find out that $68 million has been stolen from them. They're discussing that. I think it's Gamble goes, it's a guy in a cheap purple suit. The money is being traced. There's a TV there and you've got Lau at the head on it. Um, and he is saying, all your other options are gone for helping to clean your money. I'm outside of the jurisdiction of Harvey Dent, of Jim Gordon. I can be your fraudulent accountant. Yeah, I love that little touch that, as you say, the TV is at the head of the table. So he is now the head of the crime family. They all think they are, the, each of the mob bosses that are there. But I love that it's actually Lau, the accountant, who's essentially stolen all of their money at, at Maroney's request. But they're never going to get any of their money back if they don't trust in him and deal with him. Yeah. 
until the Joker arrives and gives him another option. Joker walks in, to which he says the suit wasn't cheap. Mm -hmm. He has been listening to it from the start, this whole conversation. And of course, everyone around that table kind of wants to kill him. He does the classic disappearing pencil. Uh, Absolutely. And I think, think, as you've obviously seen the film, it's one of the scenes that just stands out. It's a moment of pure, of pure Joker craziness and delightful moment and freaky at the same time. (laughs) Where he kills one of Again, one of Gamble's uh, associates. And I think this sets up a lot. It's only when watching it this time, I think, that it really stood out to me. Gamble is the one that keeps twisting the knife with Joker over and over again and really pays for it more than anybody else. He's the first The first henchman that's killed by the Joker is one of Gamble's henchmen. There's a scene which is probably my favourite of all of this, this really quiet moment, but where Gamble insults him twice and then the second, the second time he insults him, he he says, "You're crazy," and there's just that moment of the Joker going, "I'm not," and then he takes it really to heart and goes, "I'm not, I'm not crazy." That, and then it's it's from that point onwards, he set his sights on Gamble. Gamble, no matter what happens, he's not going to survive this. The Joker invert is going in there, and he's saying, "I know why you're afraid to go out. I know why you have your meetings in broad daylight. Why you don't go out uh, at night. You've shown Gotham your true colours." And he cuts it off there. He doesn't want to say that they're mm-hmm. yellow belly. And he kind of points. He goes, "The TV's plan. He's not outside of Batman's jurisdiction because mm-hmm. Batman doesn't have a jurisdiction. He is really putting it to the mobs. You have created." Batman to deal with you and now you need like someone like me mm-hmm. to help deal with the Batman for you to be your response to Batman and I think there's a really important thing here does the Joker plan all the events that go on does he mm. know that they're going to happen or is it simply that he just disrupts plans yeah there's a really interesting line later on where he says he's ahead of the curve maybe it's just perceptive mm-hmm. he can see that it's kind of like he says, the TV's plan, I know a squealer when I see one, he won't be quiet, he will give you away if you're not careful. And he makes that judgment of Lau, and we're to see whether that potentially plays out or not. There's this really interesting thing about the Joker, about him being a perceptive guy who understands what's going on. Mm-hmm. And understands plans, and likes to just mess with them, it's great. But there's a lo- I love that final moment in the scene, which is almost like a stage play. This could be Julius Caesar. You know, this could be a William Shakespeare moment where you see this great bad guy has walked in, introduced himself, did the pencil, uh, the pencil trick, as he calls it, and then exits by going, you guys can contact me. Here's my card and gives them a Joker card with no contact details on it, which I just, <laughs> I love. And then he just walks away. He just walks out. Beautiful, beautiful scene. Really, really amazing. Yeah, really good. So Gamble could obviously sense that the Joker had it in from. In, in the meeting earlier on, he's put a price on the Joker's head. Says that if anybody brings his head to him, he'll give them a ton of money, essentially. Joker's going to take him down. This body bag gets dragged into um, Gamble's headquarters. He gets put on the pool table and out pops the Joker. Uh, the iconic first scene, first description of where he got those scars uh, is, is told to Gamble. He tells him that a drunk, his drunken father starts to cut his mother while laughing away. He looks at young Joker at the time and says, why so serious? Let's put a smile on your face. And that's where he gets the scars. In doing that, we don't see it. The violence is completely off camera, Mm. but you get the impression that he has either 
slit his his face, Gamble's face, in, it, Gamble's face in the same way, or maybe it's his throat. Mm-hmm. And it's very much the violence is implied here. It has been talked about Nolan before that he keeps the violence implied. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not explicit. He generally keeps it off camera. And you very rarely see blood within his films. Uh, certainly in, in this film, you probably see blood about three times. Yeah, if even, yeah. If even that. But one of them is where he's attacked by the dogs at the start yeah. um, in the car park with uh, the scarecrow. Mm-hmm. You see it there and you see it uh, one or two other times after that. But in this case, it's a really dramatic scene because mm-hmm. Joker is explaining his scars. Maybe what you think is why he actually has them. Yeah. Not till later that you suddenly realise that the, the story changes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's part of Heath Ledger's sort of ability as an actor that he is getting all these very subtle mannerisms and tics that are involved in mm-hmm. the Joker. And the one that is his Joker's little mannerism is the tongue flick. It's yeah. like a... Yeah. Where he's constantly flicking his tongue out and kind of like licking his lips. But it's almost licking the scars as well. But I'm always... These kind of films are the ones that I'm always wondering how you rate them when you're putting them out out in the cinema, you know? I think the implied violence in this film and the creepiness of the Joker in this film means that I wouldn't take my my 14-year-old nephew to go and see it. I'd I'd really make sure that someone is adult enough to deal with these themes. Just because you don't see someone's head getting taken off in the film doesn't mean it's not violent. Maybe it's worse because... You make it up in your own head. Absolutely. It's implied. You know it's happened. Even though it's completely off screen and you essentially make up your own version of it. As to how gruesome or ungruesome that is, is another matter. Yeah, like once again in this scene, you know, it ends with Joker taking a pool cue, snapping it in half, throwing it on the floor in between three of the henchmen of Gamble and going, we've got one position open here. You guys fight it out and make it quick. And you see the guy who won the fight later on. He's he's gotten out, obviously. But you know he's killed two other guys to get that position. And you know he's obviously on the side of Joker. And this just tells us as well, from a story point of view, that the Joker is building an operation. He's mm-hmm. gradually getting more and more uh, recruits to follow him and to do his ideas and not necessarily the mobster's plan. And it cuts them onto top of the MCU building in downtown Gotham, where you've got Harvey Dent, Jim Gordon together, and you get the first meeting of the three, the triptych mm-hmm. of Harvey Dent, Jim Gordon, and the Batman. Bat signal is on, and it is to get Lau back to Gotham. Yeah. Because this whole plan to take down the entire mob has just been disrupted by Lau. Yeah, and I love I love the I love the scene because essentially Batman knows exactly what he has to do. He just needs to know if he does it, will he be prosecuted for it essentially, or will Harvey be grateful? Is Harvey on his side or is he against him? Essentially, he says it's not outside my jurisdiction. If I can, if if he can find his way back to you, will you prosecute him? And that's absolutely all he needs to hear. He hears it and is gone, disappears into the night again. Yeah. Then we come back to to Lucius in preparation. You see the new. Kevlar suit that he's been asking for. Yeah, because he, he asks for it looking for something that will protect him from dogs. And uh, Lucius' response says, I'm not too sure about the big dogs, but it'll definitely protect you from cats. Yeah. Nice little, <laughs> nice little Catwoman reference there. Yeah. <laughs> like and, um, and then also this Very idea of the skyhook, which is one of the really, I think, cool moments oh, from a... Hong Kong. Yeah, and so the cover for getting to Hong Kong is that 
Bruce Wayne steals the whole of the Russian ballet that's in town for a show. Mm-hmm. Really disappointing, Rachel and, and Harvey on their date. When yeah, he, supposed to be going. so he ruins their date plans. Mm-hmm. And then, in effect, he also ruins his, the lovely tropical uh, situation and holiday that they find themselves on for Alfred, who mm-hmm. who, asks, who and poses the question, do you know the Russian for apply your own bloody sun motion? <laughs> But this is the cover by which Bruce Wayne escapes Gotham to become Batman in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And this is the first Batman film where Batman is operating outside of Gotham, yeah. I believe. He's there, obviously, as we've said, under the pretense with Lucius Fox to, to meet with Lau to cancel the deal. Whilst we're in Hong Kong, um, we also get introduced to another bit of gadgetry, another little bit of Batman's kit. Lucius working hard. Yeah, and this is kind of the sonar phone, um, which is much like a submarine. Submarine, exactly. (laughs) Not a bat. Um, And this is planted in... (laughs) It is. It's a really nice little little joke. And that's planted in Lau's office building in Hong Kong, uh, where then Batman goes back. Again, one of those beautiful um, sweeping IMAX cityscapes yeah. of Hong Kong in the evening, and he jumps off building in his bat suit to take Lau, bring him into custody, and he escapes using the Skyhook, which is a pretty awesome Bond esque type um, gadget. You can really see Nolan's sort of love and fandom for all things relating to 007, I think. Yeah, and if this wasn't Bondy enough, this is as Batman's being taken up, um, Batman and Lau are being taken up on the Skyhook. The Batman theme tune plays properly, just like Bond theme tune always plays, and he's done a big Bond moment. This is the big Batman moment, so yeah. Batman theme plays. Awesome, really, really cool. Ultimately, he's dropped off outside the Gotham City Police Department with a bit of cardboard, with a bit of writing saying, <laughs> for the attention of Lieutenant Gordon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and as predicted by the Joker, this guy squeals pretty quickly on the, on the rest of the mob, a little bit of uh, persuasion from Rachel Dawes, and he essentially gets them on a RICO violation, which is exactly the same thing that Al Capone was called on. It essentially means that if you pull all your money, you try and hide it from the government, if they find one person that's pulled all the money, everybody can be charged with the same charge. So there's 500 members of the gangs uh, of, of Gotham rounded up, including Sal Maroney and the Russian mobster. I think his name's Chechen, but I'm not sure about that. Could, yeah. be, uh, could be related to another Russian country. But they're all rounded up and, uh, and hauled into court all at the same time. Yeah, uh, different under... sort of extortion, racketeering, that type of thing. Yeah, and all under this one little Rico ruling, which is, uh, which is really, really interesting. I think as well what we get from, from Lau and his interaction with the DA office as well is just... This idea that there's a very much a difference between being held in the MCU's holding cells and being held down in county. Mm-hmm. Like for Jim, that's a really important thing. In the at the MCU, he feels he can trust the people there. At county, he just feels that Maroney and all these people there now in court under this RICO ruling will be able to get him. But one of the little then snippets we get here, and it kind of brings an end to what I kind of consider to be Act 1, which is this introduction to the Joker and to Harvey Dent. It's this idea of two different sides of something that becomes the same coin. And that's that you have Batman there as the central figure in Gotham. Mm -hmm. And you're introduced to the Joker on one side and then to Harvey Dent on the other. So you have the White Knight, the Dark Knight, and the villain of the piece all together. 
and you essentially are being introduced to these new components into Nolan's universe, which are the Joker and the new DA, Harvey Dent. And it comes to an end, this Act 1, with Judge Cirillo, where she is filing through the papers for this this court case, and she just comes across a Joker card Mm -hmm. in amongst the pile. Um, And to us, that is a hint that he is watching, he is knowing, he is observing in some way. For Cirillo, she kind of just looks at it and goes, how did that get in here? And kind of tosses it to one side. And this ultimately then brings about Act 2 in a similar way as we described for Batman Begins, where you have then this development of the main villainous protagonist in The Joker. You get to start to see his motives and the, his real intentions. So far, we've just been introduced to him and begin to understand him more as this development gradually unfolds. And also, we see more of Harvey Dent and and his motives of what he wants to do as Harvey Dent. But you, it's also then the development of this character, maybe some of the cracks, or maybe some of this some far more importance being placed on chance that we we get to see. Things are worse than ever. Amen. Yes, they are. The night is darkest just before the dawn. While the mayor and, and Jim are speaking and, and talking about everything that's going on, suddenly in flies the body of one of the bat fans, as I call them, at the beginning of the film. One of the, uh, yeah, one the, of the copycats. Guys, one yeah. of the guys who took on the mantle of Batman and was wearing his hockey pads. Um, he's Brian, he, isn't it? Yeah, Brian, he smacks against the window, um, hung, strung up with a Joker card on uh, on his chest. And we find out he's been murdered by the Joker. And this is this is kind of told through then a handheld camera piece. This is being played through GCN, through the Gotham City News Corp. Mm-hmm. This interview of one of the copycats by the Joker. It's kind of interesting that this is one of two of these types of sort of handheld camera footage uh, that we see in, in the film. And that they were done by Heath Ledger, yeah. by the Joker, um, because... It would be that he would just do it himself. Mm-hmm. And in the first sequence, it was this sequence. It was supervised by Christopher Nolan. He thought he did such a good job that for the second sequence that happens later on in the film, he just left that up to uh, Heath Ledger to do uh, because he thought it was it was so good. Mm-hmm. And you really get some menacing, that sort of deep voice where he just shouts, look at me, to, to Brian, who's trying to obviously skirt out of his wits. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to just not even make eye contact. Um, and he makes the point that this is how crazy Batman has made Gotham. We begin to start to see some of the Joker's motives and that he will kill a person for each day that Batman doesn't reveal himself mm-hmm. to him and to the city of Gotham. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he actually t- tends to make good on it. We'll see as we go along. Yeah. He actually does kill someone every single day until until uh, Batman's at least revealed to Joker. So the Joker card that was hanging on the body of Brian, the unfortunately murdered um, murdered Bat fan. Um, Coffee cat. Coffee cat, all right. <laughs> um, the, the one that's in, in Mayor Garcia's office essentially has a the card that's on there. Is, uh, they check it and it's got the DNA of um, of three of our, of the main characters at this stage, there's Judge Cirillo, there's Harvey Dent, and um, Commissioner Loeb. Uh, on all three of their DNA is on there. So 
by by finding this out, they deduce these are the three targets of the Joker, essentially. Yeah, and kind of what happens next is we're introduced to that fundraiser that Bruce Wayne uh, had promised Harvey Dent, and you get this intercrossing between Harvey Dent arriving at this fundraiser and feeling slightly squeamish in the presence of people who will give him money rather than people who will kill him, mm -hmm. and um, then each of these um, protagonists that are going to now be taken out by the Joker. So, yeah, so Judge Cirillo is getting into a car. She's being told where she needs to go by by two what looked like uh, what looked like uh, detectives, essentially. Um, they could also work for the Joker because when she turns the key in her car, a bomb has been planted in there and she's killed. Um, with rain of Joker cards falling around her, so we know we definitely know who did that one. Yeah. Um, Commissioner Loeb is in his office, being made to stay there until until Jim can make the area safe for him. Um, so he does what he apparently does every night and takes out a bottle of whiskey and uh, and pours himself a shot. It turns out that that's where they got the DNA of Commissioner Loeb uh, from his glass. So he's now the next person murdered by poison in his in his bottle of whiskey. So the only one left of the three now is Harvey, and he's at this fundraiser and. Essentially, each one is taken down one by one. But in the case of Harvey Dent, maybe it's something the Joker realizes in uh, in Harvey Dent. But the Joker goes in person to the fundraiser to take down and kill and murder Harvey Dent. Mm -hmm. And it's a dramatic ramping up of of, um, of the scenes, going from a bomb to a poison, mm -hmm. and now to in person with all these people present. Yeah. And again, it alludes to what the Joker, what his motives are. In this case, we still are under the impression that he is working for the mobsters. He's taking down those people that are most uh, most of a threat to the mobs in Gotham. Yeah, yeah, and as, as you say, this all deals with escalation, which is one of the themes of the film, really. It's, it's what was alluded to at the, at the end of Batman Begins, there's going to be escalation now, and in this film, as it goes on, there's escalation. And once again, the Joker theme starts as the Joker walks into uh, walks into the party. The Joker theme starts, and as always, it also escalates and gets more and more intense as the scene plays out. One of the things apparently that happened here was that this was the first time that Michael Caine had seen Heath Ledger dressed up as the Joker. And there's supposedly a moment where there's quite a shock on his face, which is obviously part of him. Mm -hmm. acting but he supposedly had lines to say at this point and they never materialized because right. he kind of was supposedly so taken aback i don't know whether that's rumor or mm -hmm. not but it's kind of a it's an interesting thing given how much heath ledger spent sort of developing the character um both in terms of his actual performance but also ancillary stuff around it but one of the interesting things is just before he arrives bruce wayne sort of <laughs> does a knockout stranglehold on um harvey dent puts him in a, a cupboard mm -hmm. to, to kind of make him safe and then goes to what we all think is a panic room because joker is screaming where is harvey dent he's mm -hmm. terrorizing the guests and there's a great scene between Joker and Rachel, and just the construct of it, um, you get that cello string beginning to sort of reverb the Joker theme, mm -hmm. building and building and building, and you can you then get the camera circling around the two protagonists face to face, and the Joker actually says, "You've got a lot of spirit. I like that." Yeah, 
as she is facing him down. And I did I did say earlier on I don't like um, Maggie Gyllenhaal, but I love her in this scene because she looks terrified. She does a really good terrified actress part. Yeah. Um, I'd and be it, pretty terrified regardless of regardless of how much I trust another person in the room. If they have a knife to my throat, I'm going to be pretty scared, just in case somebody slips. You know. Exactly. <laughs> um, this, it's circling around and you get the building of this theme mm-hmm. crescendoing up and you then get the second scar story yeah. of how the Joker gets his scars. And this time, it's about his wife, who gambles, gets in too deep um, with the people lending lending her money. Mm. They then scar her, her face, but they're too poor for for surgery. And he loves her so much that so that she doesn't feel out of place. He too puts scars on his face so that they are the same as one another. And she cannot stand him when yeah. she looks at him, and they go their separate ways and this devastates him and this whole scar story is related to another one of the comic series or graphic novels that influenced the dark knight uh, and that is the killing joke by alan moore and brian bolland Uh, we've already alluded to long halloween by um, tim sale and uh, jeff loeb i Mm -hmm. think so of which the commissioner is actually after uh, is named after him as well. Yeah, yeah. And it's a piece that's, you know, the killing joke is, is one of the central pieces of it is the Joker keeps telling the story. You never know his origin, even though that's supposed to be the big origin story of uh, of the Joker. Um, it's a great idea, really, just to keep, you know, people on their toes. They think you get to know them. You think he's being really serious about this. He tells a really heart-wrenching story or gut-wrenching story to to each person. And you kind of wonder how he chooses them. Is he talking? Is the reason why he talks to Rachel and tells her this story about a wife that didn't exist, essentially, um, falling on hard times and him being such a wonderful husband to not kick her out, not to dismiss her and do this to himself. Is this his way of you know, sidling up to to Rachel and saying, you know, I want I want a bit of that, you know, so I'll tell her a story that might get her to realise I'm such a lovely guy really underneath all the makeup underneath this this, uh, this face. But then it's all rudely interrupted by the Joker saying, I like that, feisty, there's a bit of fight in you. Mm-hmm. And it's rudely interrupted by... Batman going, well, then you'll love me. This whole fight ensues, and you get something that obviously the Joker picks up on because he holds Rachel Dawes hostage. He's shot out the window of this penthouse apartment, I don't know, 50 or more stories up. Yep, but one thing he does do just before that, he gives Batman one more opportunity to reveal himself before killing somebody else, and it's really important. Joker has said he's going to kill one person a day until Batman reveals himself, and he takes Rachel, holds her hostage, and once more says to Batman, you reveal yourself, she'll live. And then he says, release Rachel. Let go of Rachel. And he throws her out the window, essentially. (laughs) To a lovely quip from the Joker going, that's a very poor choice of words. (laughs) Um, And he falls down the building after her and saves her, which... Yeah, the fifty-story. Yeah, fifty-story building. Maybe one of the heightened elements of <laughs> of this film, where they immediately then engage in a conversation with one another after crushing a car. Yeah. So, so in the Batman Begins review, we got about two hours into the film before we had a one moment of that was completely unrealistic. Here we get about about an hour and ten, an hour and fifty. You know, that's okay. Heightened reality, as you say. But um, we then cut to this whole um, sort of scene just between quite 
quite a close scene between Alfred and Bruce Wayne where Bruce Wayne kind of indicates that he knew that the mob wouldn't go down without a fight, but this is something different. Like, the Joker is something different. And you get this lovely story from Alfred which hints a bit at his military past that we've talked about in sort of some of the the podcasts we've done about Gotham and the, the characters and the show itself. Mm-hmm. Um, that hints at his military past where he delivers the story of a, a root of, of a bandit in um, in the jungles in Burma. They're trying to find him and he keeps stealing all these rubies. And even though he's stealing them, he's stealing them for no particular reason, not because he'd want them. They're chatting with some children who have sort of, he describes a ruby the size of a tangerine, and he's essentially giving them away. And the important point is that this story is almost like an allegory of of what's happening in Gotham. It's that and Alfred says, some men aren't looking for something logical. Some men just want to watch the world burn, i.e. the Joker. His motive is nothing logical, nothing reasoned. And it's the first hint that we get that maybe his reasoning is more chaotic, more anarchic, even more so than what the mobs who have hired him think that he is doing as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is an interesting point, really, about about Alfred's past and these kind of stories. This is, I think, the function of, of Sean Perfrey's character at least a few times in, in the Gotham TV series when he's playing his version of Alfred. I'd say he's going to have a couple of these little stories to uh, to impart to young Bruce and maybe even to, to young Jim about his experiences in these kind of environments. You know, it's, it's a, it'd be a great thing to play with for as a character. And then we get more ramping up of the, the threat of the Joker. Escalation, as you've already described. And you suddenly that there are two cops that have been found dead. Jim Gordon is there investigating. Batman has arrived. And it's two cops, one called Harvey and one called Dent. Uh-huh. And there's a hint there. Um, of the next big target to be focused on by the Joker. And that's within the Gotham Times. There's an obituary for Mayor Garcia, um, and that's dated for the following day, and that's found at this crime scene. Mm -hmm. And the following day is when we're going to have the the funeral of Commissioner Loeb, which is a full, essentially, a St. Patrick's Day parade being held in the middle of Gotham City, uh, which has has all the the cops and all the... Uh, all the pipers um, laying Commissioner Loeb to rest, with Mayor Garcia standing up and giving a speech to uh, to the whole city. And right in front of him, you can see it right at the beginning of the scene, right in front of Garcia when he starts his discussion, is the Joker with pink makeup on, with face makeup on, covering his scars and covering his... In a Gotham police uniform. Mm-hmm. This is essentially an assassination attempt on, on the mayor. The big thing, the big plot development here that happens is that Lieutenant Gordon jumps to take the the mayor out of the line of fire and he's shot in the back uh, protecting the mayor of of Gotham. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the death death of Jim Gordon um, at the hands of the Joker, essentially. At the same time, while all the chaos is going on after the the death of Jim and the shooting for the mayor, uh, Harvey takes one of the other followers and runs after him, chases him down and sees this crazy follower who's just kind of giggling away to himself at the little joke that the Joker has played. Uh, He's wearing his police badge, and the police badge says Officer Rachel Dawes on it. Again, 
the intended next target for yeah, it. Identifying the next victim. Mm-hmm. And that's that crazy cop is Thomas Schiff. Mm-hmm. Um, and you then, as well, with this scene where he is looking to interrogate the, the crazy cop Thomas Schiff, you start to see a slightly more dubious Harvey Dent oh, emerge. Yeah. Where he takes the ambulance that he's in, they go, you know, down an alleyway, and he starts to interrogate him about, you know, when's it going to happen? How's it going to happen? And he's interrogating this this guy, and he's just saying, I don't know. And he pulls out a gun, and he's flipping a coin. Yeah. And this is start of this more dubious aspect to Harvey Dent that he would do that. Yeah, but it, it absolutely also shows the importance of Rachel um, mm-hmm. to both Batman and to and to Harvey. Batman goes on the rampage after Sal Maroney at the same time. Um, both of these are intercut against each other. Batman gets his answer pretty quickly out of Sal as to what he needs to know next. But there's that great scene as well where he drops Maroney off the building <laughs> and it's like right. You can't frighten me, you know. I'm an old hat at this, almost says Maroney. Um, if you really wanted to fr- frighten me or pretend to kill me, you should have gone higher up. At this height, you're not going to kill me. And Batman says to him, "That that's what I'm hoping." And yeah. as he just lets him drop, and I mean that scene of the crunch of of his shins splintering is just, oh, yeah, it makes you kind of shiver a bit. It sort of get goosebumps because yeah. it's just so. It just rattles through you that that crunch of his bones, and again, you start to see this unfolding that um, Maroni, who has had that close up and personal uh, dealings with the Joker, essentially on Joker's terms, but is still alive, mm-hmm. says, "You've got rules to Batman. The Joker has no rules." And again, this is just starting to unravel and unwind this idea that. There is some kind of plan here from the Joker. It's more of an anarchy and a chaos Absolutely. being driven by by the Joker. But yeah, back to the like the craziness of Harvey. Essentially, when it's when Batman catches up to him after the after the Maroni attack, Batman catches up with him, sees Harvey flipping the coin for the second time against Thomas Schiff to see if he's going to shoot him in the head. Batman catches the coin in midair and tells him, if anybody saw you doing this, all of your good work would be undone. All those per- those prisoners that you got into um, into prison, the, the 400 criminals that you that eventually got put into prison, uh, all of them would be released. And everything that you've done so far would be, would be thrown into chaos just by that one flip of a coin. Yeah, you've stood up, you've shown people that you don't need to wear a mask to confront these villains. Batman actually says to Harvey, you are a symbol of hope, a symbol that I can never be. And that idea of him being a symbol of hope is something that has been ascribed to Batman in the fight for Gotham's heart and soul against all this criminality. And here is Batman using those same words to describe Harvey Dent, the White Knight, essentially. The alter ego, in a sense, in that, and the alter ego in this film, the legitimate... Um, crime fighter. Yeah, and I think it's been mentioned by a number of other characters previously. We, we mentioned it as we went along, but I think uh, I think it's uh, Jim Gordon who says to the mayor that Harvey's the hero with a face that Gotham needs, which is another 
another little reference to what's, what will eventually happen to Harvey. Um, but everybody in the city seems to be getting behind Harvey now. But yeah, at this stage, Batman is and, and Bruce are starting to uh, are starting to realize that there's nothing they're going to be able to do to stop um, to stop the Joker. So Bruce consults with his with his oldest friend. He discusses this whole situation with with Alfred and trying to find some kind of some kind of way of working with this and how's what what's he going to do? And Alfred says to him that you know that you are you need to endure that's that's your job here you need to endure you can't just give in to this terrorist threats it's very much you know many many movies do this but this is a real 9-11 allegory essentially of all about you know what does america do when they're being attacked by terrorists do they give in and then the next terrorist that comes along has something to hold over them well you gave in to the last guy you'll give in to me is batman going to give in to this terrorist or is he going to endure and and work through it yeah it, it, it's this idea that Batman has to outlast all this escalation that's going on, that he can be a focus of this escalation, of this hatred, um, and that's what Batman can do, as you say, be that endurance. There's another interesting interchange, personal interchange, between Bruce Wayne uh, and Rachel Dawes. Mm -hmm. Again, she's gone to the apartment because she's been warned by Harvey Dent that she's the next target. And Bruce and herself are having this conversation and Bruce is saying that he is going to reveal himself, that enough is enough. And this occurs just before Alfred um, talks to him about enduring. Mm -hmm. And it kind of sets up very much a, a conflict in, in Bruce Wayne, Batman, about what he should do and the reasons why he does it. Because ultimately, Bruce Wayne does not want to see Rachel Dawes die. Mm -hmm. she, he doesn't want to see her be the next victim. And so he will reveal himself. And Rachel puts the question out there that by revealing himself, if you turn yourself in, they won't let us be together. Yeah. Him, Bruce Wayne, and Rachel Dawes. And she says, don't let me be your only hope at a normal life. Mm -hmm. And so she poses the question to Bruce Wayne that... You can't put everything onto me. But it sets up an interesting sort of dynamic later on in the film where he has to make a choice. Mm -hmm. Is it between Rachel or someone else? In this case, it's Harvey Dent. Again, this is the same here. There's a choice being he is grappling with, he's conflicted by, to reveal himself to save Rachel or to continue as Batman, ultimately then, following Alfred's advice. advice to endure and to outlast because that's the best chance that Gotham has of dealing with the Joker. Yeah, yeah. So essentially Harvey set up a, a, a press conference to reveal the Batman essentially and see what the city's thoughts are and this is loads of police officers there, loads of press there. Again, the press escalation in this in this case, you can hear them shouting out during, during, Har during Harvey's speech, they're shouting out for Batman to reveal himself. For some reason... <laughs> They obviously don't know the Joker very well, but they all, they, all these, uh, all these police officers, all these press officers, all think that if Batman reveals himself, that's the end of the Joker. The Joker will just walk away. That'll be the end of it. We all know that isn't true. But it's um, a really, really tense scene. Starts to again escalate and escalate until Harvey reveals himself as the Batman. Yeah. yeah. He essentially says, "I am the Batman," and gets himself uh, arrested. And yeah. um, he comes out as well with this really nice line. He's talking about the culpability of Gotham allowing someone like the Batman, allowing vigilantism, in a sense, to exist. Um, 
that he is replacing that void that has been left by inaction mm -hmm. amongst ordinary people, amongst the police department, amongst city officials. And despite all these calls from the press and from cops saying no more cop killing, no more you know people dying, Batman must reveal himself. He always says the night is darkest just before the dawn. This mm -hmm. idea that you have to get to a nadir before all this effort begins to gradually lift the city out of this menace and corruption that has happened. Yeah. This is a really important point because he he's, gets arrested and then he begins a uh, transfer to jail. Yeah. Yeah, so he's in one of the great, um, really good action sequences of this chase through Gotham. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's it's um, he is brought into brought into the MCU, but he's being transferred from the MCU to, as we said, the, the central prison in the city, um, where nobody wants to go, but uh, but where they'll take Harvey. Um, but as he walks out to as he walks out to the to the truck to be brought on this trip, the police truck to be brought on this trip to the other prison. Um, Rachel's there waiting for him, um, disgusted because she knows who Batman really is, disgusted that Harvey's taken the blame for this, um, realizes that Harvey's going to be used as bait to draw out the Joker. And again, this is her fiance now. This is her, the person that she wants to spend the rest of her life with. So obviously she's really terrified for him. Um, he says he's going to flip the coin. Um, and this is where Rachel finally fi finds out that he never leaves anything to chance. He says he's going to flip the coin to, as to whether he'll stay or go. Turns out that it's a double-headed coin, uh, which he's been mm -hmm. using all along for all for all of these uh, moments of chance, essentially. Uh, but yeah, there's the there's the whole chase sequence, which starts out with my favorite little touch, just the uh, the fire engine blocking the road, which is on fire. Which is yeah, exactly. Nice. This really really nice, <laughs> nice little, little ironic touch there. Right, and and then... as well, you just know he's coming. As Harvey then is getting into the van, as these vans are all pulling off to take him to, to the jail, and introduced by Hans Zimmer again is just this one cello string, the one chord that gradually starts to reverb and, and build up, and you know... You know he's coming. He's yeah. coming, yeah. and really good chasing. Absolutely. Then you see the big, huge truck, the amusement park truck, with uh, Slaughter is the best medicine written across the side of it, <laughs> yeah. which, is, which is awesome. And you um, get the escalation of a machine gun. Yeah. I love that image of it just sort of puncturing, like just or indenting, I should say, sort of the inside of, of the, the, the van. Truck, yeah. 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 Um, and then you get the shotgun mm -hmm. and that... And then finally, out comes the RPG, right. <laughs> and it's just the shock, the the look of horror on the faces of the two guys who are driving the van. Going, it's like we're seriously not paid enough exactly <laughs> for the rocket launcher yeah. to, to to get shot at us. Yeah. Um. So yeah, and then the Batmobile arrives. Yeah, the the chase keeps going. There's more and more shots being fired. There's a, a police truck that's run off the road. It's all fantastic. Yeah, and it's all done under this underground road system in mm. uh, in Gotham, and it's actually one of these great sequences that Nolan has where you have the use of models. Mm. So where the police van mm -hmm. crashes out from the road, through a barrier, out into the river, that's all a model. Yeah, looks um, Where the Batmobile ramps up the one of the trucks up against the, the ceiling of this underground tunnel. Mm -hmm. Again, that's uh, a model. And it's really good. And it 
it's a really good sequence of intercutting model work with essentially visual effects where you have um, the helicopter scene where Joker goes rack em up lads as they start to put wires between the the skyscrapers mm-hmm. and all that scene there you then have is a visual effect culminating in quite frankly and if you haven't looked at it on the DVD just check out oh, the, yeah. the extras where they do a full practical special effect much uh, in the same way that would be done on Bond and I think it's Chris Corbold mm-hmm. who is back again on The Dark Knight he worked on Quantum of Solace and I think Casino Royale mm where they flip an articulated truck. They flip the the slaughter is the best medicine truck. Uh, the 16-wheeler, yeah. yeah. That's really cool. Quality. Quality um, bit of uh, stunt work and special effects. Just before that, we're introduced to the Bat-Pod. This is Batman's new vehicle. The Joker destroys the Batmobile with the rocket launcher, uh, completely destroys it, and there's this great moment where, while it's exploding, uh, Batman essentially reveals the Bat-Pod from inside the the uh, the Batmobile. Yeah, and it's, it's like a cool some, little scene. Yeah, but it's like something out of uh, out of Transformers or Thunderbirds. Um, for me, it's just something you know. How did he know that the the whole car was going to explode and going to need going to be? Uh, he'd need the ability to drive out on a motorbike. And how does his head not come off on the chassis of the Batmobile? Because he's Batman. Because <laughs> he's Batman. Yeah. And oh, he survived a fifty-seven story fall. <laughs> that's that's very true. That's very His true. His head is clearly made of titanium. <laughs> Possibly. You never know. But <laughs> you know, Batmobile is destroyed with this great line, you know, damage catastrophic. Batmobile, the tumbler says goodbye to him as he's ejected out on the bat pod. <laughs> and all I can say is long live the bat pod, because it's a cool um bike which they actually made a real one of those and had a stuntman driving those. And it's just apparently the size of those wheels mm-hmm. for for a, for a motorbike, in a sense, was just like required such precision to, to steer it round corners. Because mm-hmm. um, isn't it true, like even though everybody wants to be Batman, isn't it true that, that, uh, that Christian Bale never got to drive Either the Batmobile or the Batpod. That it was ne- it was always left up to it's to stunt drivers. I think so. Yeah. So he's never actually driven the uh, the Batmobile, and that would be the only reason I take the part in the movies just to drive the Batmobile <laughs> through. <laughs> he attaches hooks and lines to to this truck, weaves in and out, attaches it, I think, around some lamp posts mm-hmm. and into the road, which gets this truck to flip right over, and then you have this game of chicken, essentially, between the two protagonists. The Joker coming out, stumbling out with it, firing his shotgun, going, hit me, hit me. So Batman just screaming at him, presumably in frustration. Again, this sort of conflict just resolving itself with a scream of frustration from the Batman about, does he hit him? Does he take him out, or does he live by the rule that he has, which is, I don't kill people or I try and prevent people from dying as much as I can. Yeah. Um, and again, and you know, as you say, with the Joker going all the time going, I want you to do it. I want you to do it. He's prepared to die in this scene. I'm absolutely convinced yeah. of it. It's not just it's not just that he's goading Batman on. He's goading him on to kill him, to break his one rule. Um, fantastic scene. And Batman can't do it and almost dies in the process. Knocks himself out essentially by crashing the Batpot. Um, giving the Joker the opportunity to try and take off his mask. Yeah, uh, which is electrocuted, <laughs> electrified. Sorry, uh, and electrocutes one of the Joker's guys. Yeah, um, exactly. And then huge reveal: 
Jim Gordon is actually alive. He isn't dead. This has been a plan between him and Batman and Harvey Dent, although Harvey Dent only ever knew part of the plan. Mm -hmm. And that was Harvey Dent was being used as bait to be used as bait. He knew this to draw out the Joker from from his hiding because there was a price on Harvey Dent's head. Mm -hmm. And Harvey Dent accepted this. But he comes out of the back of the police truck and says, you do keep things pretty close to your chest, don't you? That's to Jim Gordon from Harvey Dent. Because even Harvey Dent thought he was dead. Yeah. 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 So they finally captured the Joker, and this is probably where most of the films would end. (laughs) This is pretty much, you know, the end of the movie. The three, three good guys have won. They've captured the Joker. They bring him down to the major crimes unit and stick him into a into a cell down there. But a great scene when they're just cataloging all of uh, all of Joker's knives, and um, where they're taking them all out of the pockets of his jacket, and they catalog them as a really big knife, really small knives, and then a potato peeler <laughs> is in there. <laughs> but there's something about it. it. I don't know how whether it's just the way it's filmed or whether it's just the way the way the Joker's been played up to this time. The, the potato peeler is not is a scary weapon because you know who's <laughs> holding it and you know he can do anything with that potato peeler. Exactly. Um, really, really good. And it's really interesting because in our fifth podcast, um, it was our second part of our Gotham Central review, mm-hmm. and we reviewed an arc uh, from issues 11 through to 18 called Soft Targets, and it involved the Joker and it involved the Gotham City Police Department. And as we were reading this, and if... You, if you want to, you can listen to the podcast. Um, you know, there's an awful sudden lot of similarities between this story, Soft Targets, um, from the Gotham Central series by Ed Brubaker and Greg Rucker, um, which involves the Joker, and part of it is a jail sink, a, a, is a interrogation sequence between. Um, the Joker and Probst, which is one of the lieutenants, mm-hmm. doesn't involve the Batman like here, but certainly it plays out very much later on um, as the Gotham Central scene. Another similarity between those is uh, sort of this heavy influence of the media. So you have GCN, you have the, the Gotham Times, a lot of media being used Absolutely. to expedite the the story but also to give um, a more rounded flavor of the city of gotham and it was one of those points where we were kind of going through this and certainly for myself i just kind of thought this is like the dark knight yeah i couldn't believe that it wasn't being referenced along with the likes of the long halloween and the killing joke mm-hmm. as a source material for this film because it ends up where there, there's quite a large number of similarities I thought between some of the main plot points. I'm not saying that it was used as a source mm-hmm. for for the film, but certainly um, it plays along the same kind of lines. Yeah, uh, it, it absolutely felt like it at the time when we were reading Gotham Central, and definitely, I'm definitely noticing much more of the action taking place in this film within the major crimes unit. I feel like even though the characters aren't named the same, there's a lot of characters in the background that are that are characters in in Gotham Central, the comics. And it is exactly what spawned us doing the Nolan trilogy. This wasn't in our plan to do this this early in our in our pre-Gotham coverage. But this is one of the pieces that spawned it, yeah. was, was reading Gotham Central and, and remembering what the effect that, uh, that the media had within Dark Knight and this particular 
this particular uh, scene with Joker and Batman and the interrogation um, yeah. and how it played out. Another important scene and event that we have in these sets of jail sequences at the MCU is that Mayor Garcia appoints Jim Gordon, now that he knows he's alive, right in front of the Joker, and he promotes him to Commissioner Gordon. Mm -hmm. And here we have Jim Gordon moving from Lieutenant through to Commissioner. There's a really nice zoom out, or pan back, I should say, um, from the Joker moving back. He's just sat there witnessing this promotion. And he just starts to sort of slow clap mm-hmm. um, Jim Gordon's promotion. Yeah. And amongst all the other applause of, of the other the other members of the Gotham City PD who are genuinely happy for Gordon. Uh, he's their leader. He's just become the commissioner. And in amongst that, you just hear, you start to hear the clap and then everybody else's applause die away. And it's just the Joker's clap. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Yeah, I love it. And I mean, it's also another important point to think of this film is that Jim Gordon has a much more central storyline mm-hmm. in this film than he did in Batman Begins. That This interaction with his family, for example, with his death, his relationship with Harvey Dent, obviously back to internal affairs and his um, investigation of certain detectives, mm-hmm. his relationship more with Batman, you know, a number of scenes where they're planning with Batman to take down the mobs with the marked bills, um, on the top of the MCU. And it's a really important development of Jim Gordon's character within this film. And I think more so than any other Batman film was there a significant focus for the film on this other character. I I don't want to say ancillary character, but in effect, yes, an ancillary character. He's absolutely always been there. He's definitely gotten more lines in every film prior to this. Uh, and every TV show prior to this than any other background character, I'd say that. But this film does have a good story arc for for Jim Gordon, um, and I think we'll talk about it when we get to Dark Knight Rises. But I think uh, I think both those films definitely show show Jim Gordon as being quite a central character to Gotham. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But this interrogation scene, we suddenly realise that Harvey Dent didn't make it home after he'd been rescued from the back of the police van, mm-hmm. and it's like. The Joker is saying to Jim Gordon, who is interrogating, who did you leave him with? Your people? That's if they still are your people. Does it depress you how alone you really are? Directs this towards Jim Gordon. And it's a really interesting aspect that even with everything they've done, Jim Gordon, Batman, Harvey Dent, that the person who they've arrested is in custody, is still saying to them quite blatantly, quite brazenly, you're still alone. You still can't trust everyone, if anyone at all, that you think you can. How does that make you feel? And you get then a really good cop, bad cop type scene where essentially, what was it that we were saying? Batman pulls a a Ra's al Ghul, does a Ra's al Ghul. (laughs) Yeah, just appears in the background. Uh, But I think it's also just really important, just quickly, an aside, it's just really important that the plan from Harvey and Jim and Bruce, Batman essentially, was to capture Joker. They were to get to this point where the Joker was in custody, not realizing that was his plan all along, essentially. He flipped their plan completely because he knew 
or thought, well, what ha- what happens if I do get into custody? Yeah. What's my what what, what will I do to get out of that? Um, but he has a plan. He does have in this in this particular scene, Joker definitely has set up a plan for himself if he gets caught. Um, it's a very important piece to know because I know we spoke about it earlier as to whether Joker has a plan or whether he just follows follows along all the time like a dog. Um, well, and it's it's a really important scene in this interrogation room about revealing Joker's motives. That you know he was perceptive enough to know that these schemers would be trying something, mm. or for somehow he knew from insiders what was going on. Yeah, but I think that's less. Likely, given that one of the people involved in the plan didn't even know what was ultimately going on mm-hmm. in terms of Harvey Dent with the death of Jim Gordon or, you know, the perceived death of Jim Gordon. Yeah. So he he kind of realises that they are schemers and he ultimately just wants to disrupt those. Mm-hmm. And we, we get a nice flavour of that, certainly later. You get this great exchange between Joker and the Batman. He says, you change things. I know the truth. There is no going back. The mob thinks that they can simply reclaim, recapture. Mm-hmm. But Matt, Batman has changed the landscape of the criminal underworld in Gotham. And it is now people like the Joker and whoever else mm-hmm. that is set to come. The Joker really argues Batman is included in that, that it's people like the Joker and Batman that are going to rule this city. Uh, in whatever way, uh, Batman says to him, you know, why are you trying to kill me then? He says, I'm not trying to kill you. You complete me. You are part of me, both of us together. Yeah, what would I do without you? I do you? Without you? Exactly. And you have an interesting point on the... Well, the you, you complete, yeah, but the you complete me line is is from Jerry Maguire. It's one of the most recognisable lines yeah. that's 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 been said in cinema. Really, the you complete me, and he's taken the line from two lovers in uh, in a central in a, in a Tom Cruise movie of all things, um, and chosen it as his words to say to Batman, showing his absolute love for Batman. This kind of brings about a change. It's like he sees it as a game of cat and mouse almost. He says the only sensible thing is to live without rules. And you're going to have to break your one rule. You're going to have to knowingly let someone die. Mm. And this is a really important point because Batman essentially freaks out because it is revealed that Rachel Dawes has been apprehended. Harvey Dent never made it back after being rescued. And they have both been taken by accomplices of the Joker mm-hmm. to different locations, and one of them will die. And I'd argue at this point, this is the point where Batman has actually revealed himself to the Joker the way the Joker wanted him to. He's revealed everything about himself to the Joker. He doesn't need to take off the mask anymore. Batman has now revealed he is Batman. These are the, these are the lengths he'll go to. He, he will not kill. And he's revealed his love for Rachel in the fact that that's who he's going to go and save. He's revealed that in, in a previous scene where he jumped out the window after Rachel. Now, essentially, Joker has the full picture of Batman. He now knows everything about him that he needs to know. It becomes apparent later that that Joker no longer wants to reveal the true identity of Batman Mm -hmm. because they are this fit to one another. And I think one of the other things that it reveals is that, as you said, the Joker actually thought that Batman was Harvey Dent. And he goes, the way you threw himself out the window after her. And this is his link that you must choose now between Harvey Dent or Rachel. It's this love triangle comes to fruition. And Joker reveals a really interesting thing that 
I'm not a monster, I'm just ahead of the curve. It plays to this idea again that that scene at the top of in Bruce Wayne's penthouse apartment is that despite it not fa- it not working the way he wanted it, he took something from it, he learnt from it, and he's now using that against, uh, in this case, Batman. Mm-hmm. He has a perception or something, he realises that he can disrupt plants because other people are essentially going to set up the dominoes for him to just simply topple. Exactly, just kick him over. It's like a, it's like you build a sandcastle and he'll walk right through it, just just for the fun, just for the chaos of it. Yeah, so and so, Batman runs off to save Rachel, seemingly. Uh, Commissioner Gordon runs off to, to save um, Harvey, is what he thinks. Only one person can be reached in time. Um, is this the plan that's orchestrated by the Joker? Does he think that Batman will reach either Rachel or Harvey? Um, he gives him the wrong address. Batman reaches Harvey by driving at huge top speed, a faster vehicle than anybody else could possibly have. So I do wonder whether the intention from the Joker was, I'll kill them both. Bombs go off at the same time. I'll kill them both. But it just so happens that Batman gets there on time and uh, and, and rescues Harvey, uh, not Rachel. Meanwhile, now that the big players are out of are out of the GCPD, it's now Joker's turn to to break out of break out of jail. Again, another scene that's reminiscent of the soft targets mm. arc from Gotham Central. Yeah, where he just starts saying that I want my one phone call. I want to get out of here. Um, keeps goading the GCPD officer to get to get him out. Um, to say that he wants to attack him. The whole, it turns out the whole plan the Joker had at this time was to get himself arrested by the GCPD. Get in there serve this information to Batman and serve this information to Jim Gordon about Rachel and about Harvey, but also to get, finally get at Lau, who's been sitting in the GCPD's holding cells. That's what? the whole plan for the Joker, is to get all those pieces of motion, walk in here and do it, and he achieves his plan. And he does it in a really sort of calculating way, this exchange between Joker and one of the detectives. I think it's Stevens. Mm. And the Joker's kind of saying, I killed six of your friends. You only really truly get to know someone when you uh, look into their eyes as the knife slips in. And he says this is why he prefers knives to guns. And because you get to see the true person as the light essentially flickers out. A really dark, really menacing. And he says, in some ways, I probably knew your friends better than you did. And this just riles him up the final sort of nail in this coffin of, do you want to know which ones of them were cowards? The cop comes to beat him up. He goes, I've got to enjoy this because I know you will do. The the detective has walked into his trap and he's now captured. And this is, I just want my phone call. It's purely to get the phone call to phone up and someone cause the distraction in the MCU, blow up the MCU in order, as you say, to get at Lau. Really good sequence oh, of events. Yeah, it's brutal. And as you say, it's really, really reminiscent of, uh, of Gotham Central. If you haven't read a review of Gotham Central and you haven't read the books of Gotham Central, go out and read, read it. It's, uh, it's really, really enjoyable. So, yeah, so now we have, we are back and we have the explosion, the death of Rachel Dawes, which is a really shocking moment. Um, I think definitely when I saw it first, um, it's still quite shocking now, even though I know it's coming. It's, yeah. it's a surprise, definitely, that they would take out Rachel Dawes' character, the recaster. You have the anguish on Harvey Dent's face and in his voice as he's, why are you coming for me? Why me? Mm-hmm. As Batman is pulling him out and yeah. it resolves this whole thing this conversation between Bruce Wayne and Rachel previously about yeah. don't pin all your hopes onto me Bruce for a normal life 
he goes after Harvey Dent, not after Rachel, and he leaves Jim Gordon to go after to Rachel. That's what Harvey thinks, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Obviously, he did go after Rachel. He was just given the wrong address, but... Uh... Oh, he didn't know that. Yeah, that's essentially it. The Joker's given the wrong address to uh, to him, knowing that he's going to go after Rachel. He's given him Harvey's address. So when when Bruce arrives and Batman arrives, well, he's it's one by, thing uh, I just have never ever yeah. considered. Yeah, okay, yeah. he's, he's greeted, learned something new. He's every greeted day. by Harvey, going, "Why are you here?" And he, Batman, is taken aback that he's at the location where Harvey is. Um, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I never, I never fully realised that before. Yeah, so just, just as as Joker likes to throw it off. Bit of menace into the into the mix again, you know. There you go. So you learn something new every day. But not only is there anguish on Harvey's face, there's also gasoline, which has he's fallen into uh, fallen in, <laughs> into one of the. <laughs> that was pretty bad, wasn't it? That's hilarious. <laughs> but obviously, in one of the more important scenes <laughs> of of the film, not yeah. only the death of Rachel, Rachel, yeah. but. Yeah, we get the creation of, of Two-Face. Yeah. Harvey Dent is half the man he used to be. And we come to a close of the second act with some great imagery. And I think one of the best bits of cinematography for me of this film, where you have the Joker with his head out of the police car, the wind going through his green hair, and he just this image of a of a mad dog with all pleased with his head out of the window he's got the smile it's all come together he's he's disrupted everything and it brings the end of harvey dent as a single person and what we then do is move into act three where okay there is the resolution of the story but you have the beginnings and the rise of two-face Harvey Dent is completely undercut by the actions of the Joker. You get the resolution to the Joker's plans and the consequences from that. You think I want to escape from this? There is no escape from this. You don't want to hurt the boy, Harvey. It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair! You thought we could be decent men in an indecent time. You were wrong. The world is cruel. And the only morality in a cruel world is chance. So Act 3 opens with Batman standing in the ruins of uh, 250 52nd Street, which is where Rachel Dawes has been, has been blown up, essentially. Um, while standing in the ruins, he looks down and finds the, the coin that Harvey's carried with him uh, all the way throughout the film and gave to Rachel before he was taken on his... Uh, on his excursion. The coin is now burnt on one side, distinguishing it from the other side. This has now become a two-faced coin, a two-faced, one side burn, one side not, essentially. Now now kind of distinguishing one from the other. And there is this aspect of, did I bring this on, uh, Rachel, says Batman, or Bruce Wayne to Alfred. Uh, this stage has gone back to his apartment. Um, and there's this whole interesting thing, and it comes back to this story that Alfred said previously. You know, and Bruce Wayne asks, did you capture this bandit, the one that is just trying to see the world burn? And Alfred says, yes, we did. We burnt the forest down. And in a sense, it portends to what must happen in order to capture and arrest and bring to justice the Joker is that people or the forest will burn on its way to to that aim, to that goal. Yeah. So 
it's a really interesting point um, that links back to the previous conversation that Bruce Wayne Batman has had with Alfred Pennyworth, his butler, his trusted uh, companion. Yeah, and one one point we didn't really talk about was that before Rachel before Rachel died, she gave Alfred a letter, essentially telling Bruce that she was not choosing him, that she was choosing Harvey. Uh, told Alfred to to hand off that letter to Bruce whenever he he thought the best opportunity presented itself. He was about to, to give it to Bruce that morning. Decides against it and takes it from takes it from the tray and walks away with it. And then we find that Batman's identity again is threatened. And this time it's by a different person. Yeah, by, by Reese, who we mentioned earlier on. He was the consultant who discovered Batman's identity, he yeah, thinks. The due diligence guy. Yeah. Where he doesn't he, he he earlier on in the film he kind of approaches Lucius Fox to say, Well, I've done the due diligence and it's actually our books, Wayne Enterprises books that are, are wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and he I think he challenges Lucius and absolutely knows what's going on because as you know you must have recognized your your vehicle going around the streets of gotham i.e the tumbler the batmobile yeah and he says he wants uh, he wants 10 million dollars a year for the rest of his life or else he's going to tell someone that that bruce is is batman and i love the line from lucius back then it's uh, that line from lucius where he goes so let me get this straight you think that your boss is batman a guy who beats up criminals every night of the week takes them out um, and your plan is to blackmail this man. <laughs> That's great, uh, really, really good. But now this time he didn't get didn't get satisfaction from Lucius, Lucius. So he's going to the media. So you know this whole path of Reese's, where he's obviously just looking for looking for attention here. Um, I love the uh, you know we sp- we spoke about the media and how they play into this film a bit. But I love this whole bit, which is you know so it's again so Fox News or Sky News um, in Europe. Where they do this, and live at five will reveal the identity of the Batman. This isn't being done to save the city of Gotham, as the other people wanted to be. Uh, the other people, of the city wanted it to be done. They're not revealing the identity of Batman to save the city. They're revealing it to get publicity and to get the media attention involved in it. Um, yeah, but Joker's changed his mind. Yeah, he's completely changed his mind yeah. and phones in to essentially say, if Colin Reese survives and he reveals the identity of Batman. Someone doesn't take him down. I will blow up one of the hospitals in in Gotham. Yeah, and he says this after he has essentially just put his prisoner Lau from the MCU atop a pile of money mm-hmm. that is his half of the mob money. There's a lovely echo right to the start of the the film, and it echoes the words of um, William Fitch's character in the bank, is saying that. The city criminals used to stand for something, honor, dignity. And the Joker is talking to the Chechen, the, the Russian mobster. Mm-hmm. And he says, all you are concerned about is money. This city needs a better class of criminal. Tell your men they work for me now. And he has totally flipped this idea that the mobsters aren't a good criminals because they're just in it for themselves. They're not doing it almost for the the art of it. This is very Clockwork Orange where he is doing it for the sake of doing it. Exactly. That's his raison d'etre, not for money. And this is as he then sets the entire pile of money alight with Lau mm-hmm. atop it. Yeah, and threatens, threatens Chechen um, again and tells him I'm going to cut you up and feed you to your dogs essentially. Uh, creating himself as the pack leader 
So we've talked about him being a wild dog, being a mad dog. He's now the pack leader of the dogs and the yeah. pack leader of the mob. This is now his city. He's taken it over. There is one more mobster that we haven't really spoken about in a little while, Sal Maroney. He now flips on the Joker, giving Batman his location, um, where he's going to be, uh, giving Jim Gordon his location, where he's going to be. And essentially, this is because he no longer trusts that the Joker can have anything to do with the mob. He's not going to set back up the city so the mob can take it back over. He's not a gun for hire like they thought he was mm-hmm. to begin with. He is the man who's going to let this city burn. In the meantime, Harvey Dent now is in hospital after the explosion and his burns. And he's not, we find out he's not accepting skin grafts or any medication or painkillers, that type of thing. Yeah, Batman visits him and drops off the coin while he's while he's unconscious, drops off his, his now two-faced coin um, and while he's there, and then Jim comes and visits him. And we suddenly find out the nickname that the MCU had for him, or the detectives in the GCPD had for him when he was investigating most of them in internal affairs. Yeah. And yeah, Tar- Harvey Two Face, and, uh, and so we God. have the birth ultimately of this identity of Two Face. Mm, absolutely, and my God, that is some amazing, amazing job that they've done in the special effects here. Yeah, I mean, there you could is... argue there was a, a live or die moment as to how well they captured that. Mm, absolutely, and they they did and it they, so well. They waited so long to reveal it. I don't remember anything coming up in publicity as about as to how this guy looked at all how this character looked there's even a moment where jim's talking to him he turns towards the camera and just at the point where you think that face is going to be revealed camera moves away just to give that last little tease of what two faces is going to look like and it's it's almost impossible to, to not stare at it to not look at, at what's happened to uh what's happened to to harvey and what's happened to his face yeah uh, it's incredible incredible job and this is quite an interesting little fact, you know. Obviously, there's the talk of Heath Ledger doing the Joker again. That was obviously done by uh, Jack Nicholson. It was obviously done for the Batman '66, well-known character. Mm-hmm. But Aaron Eckhart is technically the the third actor to have played Harvey play Dent um, slash Two Face in, in the feature film. So we had Billy D. Williams. Yeah. And um, prior to that, in Batman in 1989, he, was, he wasn't disfigured, though, in that. Mm-hmm. I believe he was actually under contract that he would get to play Two-Face, that that was the deal, that he would get to play mm-hmm. Harvey as Two-Face, uh, I believe he Williams. That's why he took the part. And then the final um, person who's played Harvey Dent, Two-Face, is Tommy Lee Jones uh, in Batman Forever. Mm. In that film, it only sort of, the dense transformation to Two Face um, is really shown in flashback, and he really is already Two Face uh, straight from uh, the beginning. Uh-huh. But he is the third person to have that special honour of playing Harvey Dent Two Face. Yeah, and I would absolutely say the best. Yeah. I love Billy Dee Williams as Harvey, though. I think, I think it's quite yeah, it's really cool. good. But he unfortunately never lines, got but... to fully portray him as. Two-Face, yeah. only as Harvey Dent. Yeah. So because of the Joker's threat that he's going to blow up a hospital, Jim goes off and tries to try and save Colin Reese mm-hmm. from yeah. the attacks of the of the citizens of Gotham, essentially. But this also leads into Batman discovering why uh, why Joker has a hold over some of the members of the Gotham CCPD and some of the members of, of, uh, of, of Jim's uh, MCU unit, essentially. Um, that there is a connection there with their 
family or friends that could be in, in one of the hospitals that, that the Joker's threatening, essentially. So by doing this, they're starting to root out all the bad parts of, of the MCU and all the bad parts of, of the GCPD. And ultimately, it ends up with Bruce Wayne saving Colin Reese from being shot by one, one of the police escorts in, in the back of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, Batman's true identity is not revealed and is saved from that revelation by his alter ego, Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, this allows um, the Joker to infiltrate into the hospital. Yeah. And in a sense, adds the final few twists of that knife that has gone into the back of Harvey Dent and to push him towards breaking point and this collapse almost into a, a madness. Mm-hmm. Um, and as with as with all the scenes with Joker and one other character, it's another fantastic. Yeah, scene and in the film. It, it reveals and, so much. This, yeah, but it starts out with the Joker walking in dressed in a woman's nurse's outfit. You know, he's dressed in a short skirt and with a with a mask on his face. Gets in easily and a, and a wig on his head. Essentially, you know, again, you gotta love you got you gotta love the portrayal of this of this character. You know, um, something just that. Most actors would go, no, no, let's actually leave that. That might not might might not make my character be cool here. It might not be a cool thing for my character to be seen in a dress and a wig. But it's really terrifying and unnerving and hilarious all at the same time, which is you know, the yeah. perfect qualities of the Joker. And he, he provides this whole idea that he turned this plan, this plan of Harvey Dent with Batman and Jim Gordon, this uh, trinity, this hook, holy kind of saviour trinity of, of Gotham from this criminality. They turn the plan in on itself and look what happens. <laughs> he goes, the mayor, cops, Jim Gordon, the mob, they all have plans. They're all schemers. And he reveals what he's about. Finally, it in front of him. I try to show the schemers how pathetic they are trying to make plans and control things. And he looks at Harvey and says, you were a schemer. You had plans. And look where that got you. Mm-hmm. He's kind of, he's goading Harvey Dent. But he does seem genuinely apologetic about what's happened to Harvey. Like he doesn't, he he kind of goes, you know, I didn't, didn't exactly plan this whole thing out. I'm not a planner. I'm not a schemer. I didn't plan for you to be sitting there with half your face burnt off and your dead girlfriend. That wasn't my plan. I was here to disrupt the plans of other people, and that's where it got you. You were one of those planners. Um, it's an interesting thing. Exactly. That, that and he kind of just says he's like a dog. Again, he makes the reference to, I'm like a dog chasing cars. If I caught one, I wouldn't know what to do with it. He's mm-hmm. just he's just in it for the ride yeah. to see what happens. It's like with our Gotham Central uh review of soft targets it's this idea that the joker doesn't care whether he gets caught and if he does it's generally part of his disruptive plans and if he does he will get out of it Mm -hmm. and he will live to fight um another day yeah but he absolutely says this is his his modus operandi and this is his in, in his goading of harvey to really become two face at this point where he's saying to saying to him Introducing a little anarchy. Um, I'm an agent of chaos. Chaos is the only fair thing in the universe. The only fair thing. Takes the gun, loads it up, puts it to his temple, and sticks it in Harvey's hand. And, you know, goads him into into shooting him in the head. Again, willing to die for this idea of chaos and anarchy. Um, And then Harvey takes up his his coin. 
And two. this is the first of Harvey Dent's sort of flicking or flipping of the coin. This is the first person of the list that he makes his way through um, that was involved in his predicament, his maiming, his disfigurement, and ultimately the death of the person who he loved that brought his entire world crashing down, and that was the death of Rachel Dawes. Mm -hmm. And in this, the Joker ultimately gets the heads. He gets the clean head side of the coin, mm -hmm. and he's allowed to live. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this really, the Joker just falls in love with the two-faced personality at that point. Yeah. He's, he loves this idea that this is how he's going to deal with his chaos, that it's just going to be a flip of a coin, and whichever, whichever way it comes up, regardless of how much hatred there is inside Harvey for the Joker, he's going to let him walk because he flipped the coin, the coin said, off you go. Exactly. And actually what we, you then end up is that, okay, the Joker's put this ultimatum to the city of Gotham, um, that, you know, kill Reese. If you don't, I'll blow up the hospital. He blows up the hospital anyway. Mm -hmm. Even though Batman hasn't been revealed, it's all ended off, in a sense, okay, but... Yeah, yeah. He does say he doesn't want Batman revealed. If, he, if nobody's killed Reese within 60 minutes, he's then going to blow up the hospital. Um, nobody's killed Reese. Okay. So... Nobody's killed Reese, so he blows up the hospital. Um, but it, this is a really good point, and this is this is one of the things we talked about earlier on. The Joker has carried out all of his threats. Every threat that he's made from the beginning of the film, he's carried out to the best of his possible ability. The only times his threat wasn't carried through was when he threatened to kill Rachel Dawes and Batman saved him. And coming up, his next threat is the only other one that he doesn't carry out, and it's because of Batman's intervention. But this scene with the hospital, it is it is something that he he had planned to do and had told the, had told Gotham that it was going to be. They had sixty minutes, and he would blow one up, and it's a fantastic scene. This scene of blowing up the hospital, it was great practical effect. Yeah. And again, another example of just um, real practical special effects being employed, um, where they destroy a building in I presume downtown Chicago. Yeah, as a former a former hospital I believe. Um where they would actually destroy and I just this this whole scene of the Joker walking through the corridors as it all explodes behind him in his little nurse's dress, you know, it's it's a fantastic scene. He gets outside, he's got his he's got his remote control. He's had the blasts, but it's not as exciting as a blast and explosion that he was expecting, so he just keeps tapping on the button. A couple more taps, a couple more taps, and then the whole thing explodes in fire and brimstone almost. It's a huge explosion heard across the city, heard by Jim Gordon. He knows exactly what's going on. And the Joker hops on a bus with uh, with Anthony Michael Hall, who's uh, who's the... Michael Engel. Yeah, he's, he's the, the anchorman of Gotham Central News. Yeah, and a full complement of patients from the hospital and, and doctors from the hospital, yeah. And essentially, this links to the second sequence, which was filmed by Heath Ledger. And this is where he gives the people of Gotham an opportunity to redeem themselves, to prove themselves in his eyes by introducing a bit of chaos and a bit of anarchy to the city of Gotham. And that it's not just him doing these types of actions. Yeah, and as you mentioned, the, the scene is filmed by Heath Ledger. It's the second one that he filmed. And this is totally filmed as the Joker. You can hear him creep in because he's given he's given a speech to uh, to Engel to read out, um, which he's not getting he's not getting right or not getting the right inflection from the Joker. So you can kind of hear him say the words going, 
anarchy. Uh, you know, time for the people to take take this. Up. Yeah, yeah, go on. And it's really creepy yeah. and really well, again, really well shot and really, really kind of funny in in its own way. Um, and I mean, ultimately, this whole sequence sets up this this final um, aspect to the film, where it, it involves the two boats leaving Gotham as the city is beginning to evacuate itself because everyone is petrified <laughs> that this has just happened. They have no idea what is going to, to happen. Yeah. And I mean, sort of before that sort of final big action sequence comes, we get reintroduced back into the Sona concept and we find out that actually Bruce Wayne himself has been funneling money into that concept that Lucius Fox developed. Uh, so that he can have this almost 3D sonar image and layout of Gotham. And he is able to triangulate through everybody's mobile phones where the Joker may be and what he is planning on doing. Yeah, as if Gotham's one giant submarine. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and Lucius Fox makes the point that this is, at the same time, beautiful but also unethical and that someone should not hold this amount of power and that he will do it this one time but once it's finished consider this to be my resignation yeah um but admittedly bruce knew this and bruce knew this was going to be the reaction of lucius he knows this is just a one-time deal there can't be anybody out there worse than the joker so therefore uh, this is something that lucius can destroy by just saying his name at the end of uh, at the end of this task essentially so yeah so he knows the the, the ethics of what he's what he's attempting to do and he knows that um, he knows the right path, but he knows he has to use this to take down someone as crazy as the Joker. And at the same time, then, we see Two-Face continuing now his revenge for the death of Rachel Dawes. Mm -hmm. And he's going one by one through Jim Gordon's um, bent and corrupt cops. And so he's there. he goes to the bar where Detective Wurtz is and flips the coin. He goes then and corners Detective Ramirez and flips the coin. He hijacks Sal Moroni in his car and he flips the coin again. And in each case, you have Wurtz is shot. Ramirez is blackmailed into getting Jim Gordon's wife away from her protection. But she is saved. But she's knocked out. Mm -hmm. Sal Moroni, too, is saved. He survives the coin being flipped. But his driver doesn't. Mm -hmm. And the really good sort of just sequence of Harvey Dent, Two-Face, taking and exacting his vengeance and revenge for what's happened to him and the death of, of Rachel Dawes. Absolutely. But there are still two other people that are foremost in his mind, and that is Jim Gordon and the Batman. Yeah, and I still love again, you know, there is that he's now a supervillain. He's now a villain, like a comic book villain. And there's still that murky logic that's in there. Yeah, okay, so he does flip a coin and the coin decides, you know, anarchy or chaos. Essentially, it's not even, it's not even anarchy or the opposite of anarchy. Uh, anarchy or stability. It is anarchy or chaos. He can still make a decision as to what's going to happen to these people if he doesn't kill them because of the flip of a coin. In Sal Moroni's case, he kills him by choosing to flip the coin the driver, which he never, there was never a need to do that. But he still wants to take out Sal Moroni, so he flips the coin again. And um, you know, he still wants to wants to punish Ramirez for hers her part in what happened. So he flip he flips the coin once, doesn't get her, but 
you know, he'll still knock her out. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's still it's still that twisted logic that's in there for him. Um, but yeah, as we mentioned, there's a there's a whole the whole big kind of set piece in the third act is the is the uh, one ship of Gotham residents um, leaving leaving Gotham to get away from from what's going on, and a ship of prisoners, which is mostly the people that were rounded up by Harvey Dent, um, leaving the prison a uh, prison island and getting away from Gotham. Uh, and the Joker has said that he set up a whole uh, a whole piece on the boat. A social experiment. Yeah, a, so- a social experiment where uh, he gives them the opportunity to essentially blow up one one the opposite boat. So each boat gets the option to blow up the other boat or he will bo- destroy them both uh, within an hour. Yeah, but I still feel this is my only slight niggle with the film. Mm-hmm. I love the whole event because at the same time there is a hostage situation with the hospital staff in um, it's the Pruett building overlooking where these two boats are and it's where kind of the Joker is directing operations so to speak. Mm -hmm. But my whole problem with this scene is that I feel it's very clunky. I think it's a bit too conceived. I think how it plays out is how ultimately the the whole situation with Reese and whether the hospitals blow up and whether he gets killed and shot I'm not saying it's exactly the same I think it's analogous to how that situation is set up for people of Gotham to act and actually they in this case they actually try to and are foiled from doing that but he still he then goes and blows up the hospital anyway you get the sense that he would blow up these ships and I think maybe it's a bit of repetition. It's a bit too conceived. Um, and I also just feel that if you worked in the engines on these boats, you would notice that there was a whole load of oil and gasoline uh, <laughs> connected by wires and to a, a detonator. Yeah, and absolutely. I think, you I think would that's... never have pulled off from the side. I think, I think it was done earlier, and I think maybe it could have been done differently, or the hospital and resync that somehow could have led to this kind of final showdown or something in some way. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and I understand that, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the scene myself. I can understand what they're going for here. The Joker is still trying to say he knows the population of Gotham better than anybody else does. He knows they're going to turn on each other when given the opportunity. And you know what? Once again, he is right. The, it's the Gothamites, the non-criminals who say, we'll blow up the other boat, they've had their chance. Their vote, the vote is overwhelming that we should blow up the criminals' boats, mm-hmm. being the, the public of Gotham. But it's up to somebody to actually flick the switch, and the person they've given the task to sw- flick the switch can't do it. Whereas the criminals, they all kind of band together, and one of them takes the takes the uh, the ignition switch and throws it out the window and goes, well, now it's nobody's choice. Yeah. We'll just sit here and wait for this crazy guy to blow us up. Um, so realistically, the Joker's kind of right. Again, he probably doesn't know that he was right in, yeah. in, in his actions. But the scene itself, what would have helped it much more, I think, would be to have somebody that we're invested in on either one or the other. If Sal Moroni had been on the criminal boat and you know Alfred had been on the Gotham boat, we could see somebody talking them down. I know that the idea of the regular citizens citizen of Gotham are great, but they've been kept pretty grey and pretty much in the background for the entire film. So exactly. it's difficult to care about either of the boats. And I think for me, within this, this scene and its interplay, I prefer the events that are going on in the Pruitt building. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the bat sonar is 
an incredibly cool effect where you can kind of look up and down across the up and up and down through the building across the floors through walls and so on from the echo location i think that's really good you know this idea that the clowns are actually the hostages and swap team is targeting the wrong people so there's some there's some real urgency to what batman has to do there and it's where mike engels is at ultimately and so he gets saved and resolved and you have the the final the culmination in these two big characters of the Batman and Joker sort of facing off at the top of the building. Yeah. Um, in and I, I really, the fight with the Joker. And I really like this fight. Yeah, I really like this fight scene between Batman and Joker. The, you know, there's a, it's just it's something we've mentioned quite a lot, but I think this is really how you put it right on screen. We've said that Joker has been the mad dog. We said he'd been the, the leader of the pack. This moment where he sets the dogs on him, these are the same three dogs that were... At the beginning of the movie, these are the same three dogs that were the Russians' dogs that were in the scene with uh, with Scarecrow. Um, they are now Joker's dogs. He is the head of the pack, and the way he fights against Batman is like a mad dog. He's tearing into him. He's trying to get right inside, right inside his suit. He's ripping at him with all his knives and everything he can, he can get at, at Batman. Yeah, it's, I mean uh, that I know, scene. I know dogs don't carry knives, but you get the point. No, but that scene where the dogs are on top of Batman, they pull him to the ground, and the Joker comes over, and he is just hit repeatedly, hitting the Batman with the wrench, mm-hmm. really viciously. I think like that just just shows. Um, just how he's just kind of, he's there, the maniacalness of, of mm. him trying to just cause harm and so on. I think I love the image where the sonar in Batman's uh, mask and cowl just sort of breaks down and he sees, you get this image of the Joker just coming at him with the wrench mm. again. That's just a really good like freeze, freeze frame for me. It finishes where there are People have shown that there is some good in this city, even though it may have been the criminals. Mm-hmm. Um, and you start then on the third conversation by the Joker of where he gets his scars from. And it gets completely undercut by Batman and says, I know how you got these scars as he fires a load of uh, sort of sharpened ninja blades mm-hmm. into his face. And one of the interesting aspects here, and, it, and it's a contrast to the Tim Burton Batman 1989, is that in the Batman uses the grapple gun to essentially send the Joker falling to his death. Mm-hmm. And in this, he uses his grapple gun to rescue the Joker as he's falling, as he's been pushed off the top of the Pruitt building by Batman. Mm-hmm. And it's just this, as he's pulled back up, the Joker's like, you just couldn't let me go. It's like yeah. this reflection of the words, you complete me. But this is Batman's way of saying, I can't actually let you go either. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. And I have to say that there is just one little moment while Joker's falling. And I think for me, it's the third time in the film. While Joker's falling, he's ready to die. Once again, and I don't know why we don't know anything more about the Joker than what's presented on screen. That's it's it's there's no background to this to this character other than what um, what's being presented. But once again, as he's falling from these fifty, sixty stories in the air, he's laughing away to himself, going, "This is finally it. I'm going to die." Essentially, that's that's what we see. Then he gets saved by Batman and goes, "Oh, you can't live without me," you know. And then the sad moment for 
for me every time I watch it because it's just that moment. I've just had an amazing experience with this Joker character and the sad moment of I feel like we'll be going around like this forever is said by by the Joker and it it always gets me. It's always it's always something yeah. where you go, I really want to see the Joker again. I'm never going to see this version of the Joker again. No, exactly. I mean, in that sense, there's a real poignancy to that because of obviously what happened afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but as well, then he's hanging upside down and this dialogue with the with the Batman and he's like, "You can't let me go because of some misplaced righteousness." And he just comes back at him and says. And I can't let you go because you're just so much fun. Mm-hmm. And it f- leads to this kind of final section of, of the film where the Joker essentially tells Batman, I wasn't going to risk all my plans or all my disruption on a fist fight with you. Um, I need an ace in the hole. Um, I took Gotham's white knight and brought him down to our level. That level that he brought him down to in the hospital bedroom it goes sanity is like gravity all you need is a little push Uh and it builds then obviously to the final scenes where harvey dent in his following his transformation to two-face continues and with his his coin flipping vengeance through the city we now come to the fact that he has brought Barbara Gordon and Jim Gordon's son and daughter and Jim himself then have come to 250 52nd Street where Rachel Dawes was killed. Mm. The numbers are actually a palindrome in that they are the same forwards as they are backwards. That mm-hmm. sort of gives this hint to the duality of dense nature. So the scene essentially starts with Harvey blaming Jim for, for the death of Rachel. This is absolutely, he, he feels it's Jim's fault for for not reaching Rachel on time and sending Batman to to save him rather than Rachel. It Um, goes back to that original point of contention, which seems so minuscule at the time, but Harvey Dent always knew there were people who were corrupt in Jim Gordon's MCU because he investigated them in internal affairs. And he has been telling Jim this whole time, Mm -hmm. and they resulted in the fact that he never made it back from being saved from the Joker, and Rachel Dawes was kidnapped and sent there, ultimately to her death. And this now becomes his focus for why he needs to extract revenge on Jim Gordon and his family. Um, Really big scene and really powerful scene, you know, the final moment of Harvey Dent. And I love what they did here. I don't think Harvey Dent's a character that you could have continued into another film. I love that they wrap everything that, that Harvey's searching for. I love that they wrap it up in these eight people. He can't have another quest. It's unlike any of the other villains in the comic books or the way you'd see it where he comes back every month and has something else that that he's uh, interested in and something else that he wants to exact vengeance for. This particular Harvey Dent was a man of great honour, lost the woman he loved and everything around that. And now he's exacting vengeance on the people responsible for it. And that's a very closed story for the character, I think. And he forgets honour. It's no longer about Mm honour. It's about flipping a coin and chance. And in his eyes, that chance, that 50-50 chance, is the fairest possible way of making the decision. Because up till then, it was weighted. And now, it's simply on the toss of a coin. Says to Batman, when he when he says, how are you going to get away with this? He says, I don't want to get away. There's no escape from this. We're, we're decent men in an indecent world. This is nothing that we could ever have controlled. Now, it's interesting. You watch a film, however many times we've watched 
The Dark Knight, and you never fully pick up on something. Mm. And then you sit down to watch it in order to prepare for, for this review that we're doing at this time. Yeah. And it's the first time I've ever noticed it, and I don't know whether it's just something that I've misunderstood, but that order of the coin flip mm-hmm. by Harvey Dent at the end, and it goes from Batman to Harvey Dent to Jim Gordon's surrogate, basically, mm. which is his son. And I was watching this and I suddenly kind of went, I don't understand this. Why would you choose to flip yourself in the middle of the two people you're seeking decision on? Mm-hmm. Because if it went on to the, the burnt side of the coin, he kills himself. So I just thought, oh, I wonder if that was how it was intended to play out. I wonder if there was yeah. a reason why I couldn't really think of one, but I just it was just something I noticed that I thought it didn't necessarily make sense when he said, "Right, I will go through us all, and we'll all pay the price." Yeah, I would have thought it would have been Batman, Jim Gordon, or his surrogate in this case, his son, and then finally himself. There's only one way you can read it in my head, and it's the way I've read it is that the only way that he's going is chaos, and the only way to deal with chaos is by taking it in that route. If he gets killed, he gets killed. That's what the world. That's what. That's what's been determined by chaos is that he's the one that has to shoot himself. And if he gets taken out before the next person in line, that's just the way it's got to be. Or maybe that there is a logic in that. Yeah. Or maybe know? it's the it's the Harvey Dent part of his character that's saying, "I will give you this chance, Jim. That if I get the black side of the coin, mm-hmm. I'm dead. Your family is safe." Maybe it's that. But yeah. I know it's it's an interesting thing. Yeah, it is. Um, and it, but it's only logical to think that you will put yourself in just as much responsibility as the other two characters yeah. around you. So only to prove that you're not doing this out of some form of only vengeance, because he's not just taking vengeance. He's flipping a coin and saying, you're responsible. If the if the universe thinks you're responsible, I'll take you out. Otherwise, he would just shoot them in the head. So. But in, in this whole coin flip, Batman gets shot. Mm-hmm. He gets the burnt side of the coin. Dent himself gets the right side of the coin, the unburnt side of the coin. And finally, it moves to Gordon's son, who he doesn't actually catch it because... The Batman, he's obviously got Kevlar plating on, tackles Harvey Dent, Mm -hmm. and they fall off the side of the building. Taking Jimmy with him. Taking Jimmy with him. But the coin lands on the good side. The kid would have survived. Harvey Dent has fallen, is lying motionless on the ground, and Batman is holding on with Jimmy, passes Jimmy up to Jim Gordon, and then he slips off and falls down as well. And Harvey dies from this... Two story fall. Maybe three story. Maybe three. Maybe three. If he had fallen from fifty seven stories, he, he may have survived. He would have been fine. He would have been fine. It's a slight the... continuity issue, I think, ultimately yeah. is what we're saying here. But either you fall from three stories and survive long enough to see yourself dead, or you fall from fifty stories and survive long enough to see yourself alive. It's... And have a conversation. <laughs> and even Batman is seems to be winded. When Jim Gordon races down, both of them are flat out. Yep, and it's just, it's just that moment of, of Jim where he, he's totally lost. Here, he Jim is Jim just feels the Joker's won. Everybody will see Harvey, what he ended his life being. Everybody will All the good that Harvey's done will be lost now. And this leads ultimately to a pact between Batman and Jim Gordon. Essentially a lie. And it's a lie that continues into Dark Knight Rises. Batman, that becomes the fall guy. Harvey Dent, he's not Two-Faced. Mm-hmm. He's never been Two-Faced. And there's that symbolic movement of his head by Batman to show Harvey Dent's unburnt side. And he repeats Alfred's line, I can endure. I can be whatever Gotham needs me to be. 
And just one final piece, uh, makes one final reference to the dogs. He, t- he tells Jim to set the dogs on him. And for me, it leads into then one of the greatest kind of epilogues of a film ever. It still actually causes the hairs on the back of my neck to rise and for me to kind of get slightly sort of emotional and stirred up. This excellent close to to the film, the building Batman theme, the narration of Jim Gordon mm. and his son, this intercutting of images that wraps up um, certain plot elements, such as Alfred burning the letter, Jim Gordon doing a memorial to Harvey Dent, mm-hmm. not to Two-Face. And Batman says, sometimes truth isn't enough. Sometimes people deserve to have their faith rewarded. And it's just a really amazing build-up. And it, it starts with James Gordon's son saying, why is, he, why is he running, Daddy? With Jim Gordon saying, we have to chase him. But he didn't do anything wrong. He's the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one they need right now. So we will hunt him. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight. And to me, that is just an immensely clever and brilliant epilogue to a film. Absolutely, absolutely fantastic. And it follows on from the theme of of Batman Begins. And this time, again, no titles at the start, end of the film, as Gordon says, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight title rises. And a fantastic film, really. You guys could probably guess how interested we were doing this and how excited we were doing this, uh, this particular movie review. That definitely even more daunting than doing a, a review of Batman Begins yeah, is doing yeah, a review of so. Dark Knight. To give a quick rating, I would have said going into this, this is no doubt a, a five Batarangs out of five. For me, it is still pretty close. It is a recommend. I would say it's definitely four and a half to 4.75. <laughs> I mean, I'm, re- I'm being really picky. It's just, with reviewing it, there's just... A few elements which I never spotted before, which I'm concerned might have the future potential to slightly bug me because of how much I still enjoy, love and uh, respect this film. And for me, this film primarily is about the Joker and it's about the corruption of Harvey Dent and it's how Batman deals with both of these to become the haunted Dark Knight that can be the focus for, for Gotham. You know, this film has two sides of a coin. It has chaos and the annihilism of the Joker, and it has the endurance by the Batman to be whatever it is he needs to be for Gotham. And that that allows Gotham to see, ultimately, the dawn that Harvey Dent talks about, despite it being right at the darkest and most depressing hour beforehand. There were some excellent performances here. Obviously, Heath Ledger. Aaron Eckhart as well. I mean, I don't think we've really kind of mentioned him. But he he plays Two-Face Harvey Dent really well. And he really nails that switch between the two very well, that breakdown. I think if anybody suffered from comparison to Heath Ledger, it wasn't Batman this time. You know, we had Batman set up quite well in the first film, mm-hmm. and then Joker comes along. It's unfortunately Aaron Eckert, because if you do take Joker out of the film here, there's an amazingly good arc with Har- with Harvey and his character and what- and his transformation. If it had been anybody else in the part of the Joker, I think Aaron Eckert would have stood above it very easily, and you still would have had a great Dark Knight film, just not as great as this one is with, with the presence of Heath Ledger. So for me, this is a total recommend, as you might expect. 
I do agree with John's uh, assertion of the film. Obviously, four and a half to to four point seven five really it's it's you know it's, it's where I'm aiming for with this review. I think that if they'd cast a better Rachel Dawes, if they dealt with the the scene on the boats a bit better, I think it it could be it could be one of those quintessentially perfect films. But it is almost perfect. It's a a, a movie I've recommended to people in their eighties. It's a movie I've recommended to people in in their twenties who who've never seen a Batman comic, seen a Batman movie before. It's something that I think. I could recommend to pretty much anybody. I really do enjoy it. You know, this has helped elevate movies based on comic books to something that has a much wider appeal. Yeah, like in the same way that Godfather elevated mafia films, which had been around for decades beforehand. This is where that moment is with comic book films. This is where that moment is where you get that movement to, well, let's produce films in these kind of universes and they will stand alone as being interesting movies for anybody to go and see. Well, I think that's probably wraps up our review of The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. It's another lengthy one, a bit longer than we thought we were going to talk <laughs> about, but there are so many different discussion points Absolutely. in this film. The next time we're going to be talking about The Dark Knight Rises, the third and final part of the Christopher Nolan trilogy. Where um, the games will begin. Absolutely, the games will begin. So if you want to get in contact with us, as always, firstly, thank you so much for listening through the review. I hope Certainly. you enjoyed it. And thank, thanks so much for, for getting in contact with us about, about your thoughts on Batman Begins. If anybody wants to share their feelings about Dark Knight before the next recording that we do, uh, please do. And if, obviously, if you want to contact us about Dark Knight Rises, please do. You can get in contact with us on Gmail at, at GothamTVPodcast.gmail.com. You can also contact us directly by commenting on our website at GothamTVPodcast.com. Remember, there's also the competition that you can still enter. It's open to anyone. There's a lovely signed print of The Penguin by Matthew J. Fletcher, the artist. You can also connect with us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Google+, on Tumblr, Mm -hmm. and we'll put up the new Tumblr details that we have as well. So please find us out there. Give us feedback on anything you've heard in this podcast there as well, or any of the previous podcasts. The real pleasure discussing this movie would really like to hear some feedback and again i'd like to add my thanks to you for listening to this podcast yeah we hope we put a smile on that face of yours thank yeah. you thank you this is the hero gotham deserves but not the one it needs right now so we'll hunt him because he can take it because he's not our hero He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight.
<laughs> Just before that, we are introduced to uh, to Batman's new ride. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the bat part. Not Rachel does. <laughs> Uh, the bat part, yeah. Um, so the Joker's rocket launcher that he took out uh, blows oh, up yeah. the Batmobile. I'm gonna keep that all in. <laughs> <laughs> Just before that, you're introduced to Batman's new vehicle, and the Joker takes out his rocket launcher and blows. <laughs> blows <laughs> <laughs> I knew that wasn't going to work. Rocket launcher. <laughs> but not only is there anguish on Harvey's face, there's also gasoline. Um, which has he's fallen into uh, fallen in, <laughs> into one of the... <laughs> that was pretty bad, wasn't it? <laughs> and I said it twice because you missed it last time. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, that is... <laughs> <laughs> can I not keep that? Yeah, you can. Of course you can. That's hilarious. <laughs> I think Gary Oldman as Jim Gordon again is excellent and he's given more meat to play with um, <laughs> oh, we don't need that uh, right. um, now let me finish <clears throat> I think Gary Oldman is excellent uh, and he's given much more <laughs> <laughs> why are you going I'm saying his arc's bigger, that's yeah. what I'm saying. I think Gary Oldman plays solidly Jim Gordon, and he expands on that role because he's been given a more substantial piece to get his teeth into. <laughs> 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 